WCW Clash of the Champions. Live from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Tonight in wild six-man action, Conan, Juventud Guerrero, and Psychosis line up against La Parca, Chavo Guerrero Jr., and Super Calo. The Steiner brothers face off for the amazing French Canadians. In a return match, Dean Malenko versus the Ultimate Dragon for the Cruiserweight title. Superhuman Lex Luger goes up against outsider Scott Hall of the NWO. The Taskmaster takes out his revenge on Chris Benoit in a Falls Count Anywhere match. These matches and more on Clash of the Champions. And we are live at the Wisconsin Center. World Championship Wrestling excited about being the state of Wisconsin as we are in Milwaukee bringing you live here on TBS in prime time on the Superstation, the Clash of the Champions, where tonight athletes of WCW will battle athletes of the New World Order and much, much more. Hi, everyone, along with the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes and Bobby the Brain Heenan, I am Tony Schiavone. Dream later tonight in this arena, what used to be known as the Mecca, now the Wisconsin Center. The Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit will battle. They battled last night on TNT, but tonight, pinfalls will count anywhere. Let me tell you what, guys, when I was growing up as a kid, it was always big news when somebody would run in and say, you know, so-and-so down the road there, they had a domestic dispute. There was a woman and two guys, and there was a fighting over, and it was a domestic dispute. Well, you got a live opportunity here on the mothership on TBS to see a real live domestic dispute. Kevin Sullivan, Chris Benoit, this thing, guys, could go anywhere in this building, even outside. You're going to see it all right here at the Clash of Champions. Plus, Lex Luger goes up against Scott Hall of the NWO and the first return of Scott Steiner since the injury. He and Rick Steiner together. That's what I want to see, just how sharp Scott Steiner is. And don't think the NWO is not watching because Sold Out is coming up at their big pay-per-view. Steiner's have an opportunity to knock off Hall and Nash and become champions. I'm interested to see just how good Scott Steiner is. And we go to the ring, the opening bout here on TBS, the Superstation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the opening contest. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 years of Nitro, our chronological breakdown of World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the southern front of wrestling's monday night wars i am your host tim root and with me <laughs> as always it's my quarantine colleague dave amantorp how are you doing today dave i am doing swell it was a nice day so i was able to take a long walk and during that long walk i was able to uh, uh become the listener for one of the few times when it comes to 20 years of nitro as i listened to uh your interview with david penzer that i uh, just went up a couple of days ago um, I was just talking with you before we came on uh, live here that um, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, Dave Penzer certainly has a uh, gift of the gab, as you would say. Um, and he put there's like interesting things in there that I had not heard before, especially talking about the potential of Eric Bischoff and his uh, representatives purchasing WCW in 2001. So uh, I think there's lots of like little tidbits there that people that even if they know the whole story, 
are going to get a little bit like behind the scenes, uh, new information. So I highly recommend listening to it. Um, and I thought it was really good. But um, other than that, I've moved on. We're at Clash of the Champions and I'm ready to uh, get this thing rolling. All right. Well, before we get into today's show, I do want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter at 20 Years of Nitro. You can check us out at facebook.com slash 20 Years of Nitro. And of course, you can always email the show at 20 Years of Nitro at gmail.com. Now, we've got a great guest joining us to review the show today, a California independent wrestler based in the Bay Area who you may have seen in championship wrestling from Hollywood, all pro wrestling, kaiju attack wrestling, and more. He is, as I understand it, the current APW Internet Champion. Please welcome to the show, Levi Shapiro. Levi, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim. Hey, David. How you doing? I'm doing well. Um, not too bad outside in the Bay Area. I'm feeling pretty good. You know, some, some nice air here and there. Yeah. Well, it's uh, today was the first day for about four days that it didn't snow here in Minnesota. So we're... De- we're jealous of whatever you've got going on in California right now, believe me. Oh, definitely, right? <laughs> now, I'm curious, before we get into Clash of the Champions, uh, what's your history with WCW? Is that something that you watched? Uh, I get the impression you're probably a little younger than Dave and I, but was it something you were into, or, or are you kind of getting it for the first time here? No, definitely. Uh, I was born in 1990, you know, so I kind of came in right at the tail end of tape trading you know i remember seeing a few tapes floating around when i was younger i was always a fan basically um when i was real little i remember seeing the bushwhackers is probably my first experience of wrestling uh first memory even you know and i remember seeing them on the tv so i would go down to my local vhs shop and rent wwf tapes coliseum video mainly but Mm -hmm. um the monday night war was heavy you know i was one of the kids that was you know immersed in it and i wasn't like I wasn't diehard to where I collected everything and I bought all the shirts and and I was very common, you know, but I watched it every night, but I was still young. So I would definitely watch the two hours of Nitro, but then usually 10 o'clock was my bedtime, you know, so I would catch the eight and nine o'clock hour. I believe that's right. Right. And then the nine and 10 o'clock hour. So I would catch that last hour of Raw. Sure. So I was I always caught a lot more of the Nitro, but I was always raised a WWF fan. Do you remember watching it like kind of this time early 97 or was it kind of a little bit later on that you were that your memories kind of solidify as to what you were enjoying at the time? No, this was probably the peak. I definitely um, I remember the Four Horsemen was like it was so wild to see. Cause I knew Ric Flair a little bit of the history. Right. But I didn't mm-hmm. know anything yet. Like when I, when I became more of a wrestler, you know, a lot of the real old territorial stuff is really like what sits with my heart, you know? So this was like a nice introduction, but like that was one of the first wrestling shirts that I ever had. And I was a bowler at the time. And so they had the WCW bowling league. Ah, nice. Um, and so I think that was like 98. It was right after they changed the logo. So, yeah, that was a little bit later, but um, no, I was definitely familiar with all of this, and it was kind of reminiscent to kind of go back and watch it. Well, today is Tuesday, January 21st, 1997, and we are coming to you live from the Wisconsin Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, not for Nitro, but for Clash of the Champions 34 in front of about 6,800 fans, 5,696 of whom paid 
for a total gate of $88,466. This is WCW's first televised card in this arena since Clash of the Champions 22, which was held back in 1993, and it's the first televised wrestling card in this building for any company since last June's King of the Ring tournament was held here for the WWF. Hmm. This show is primarily being used as a promotional tool for this Saturday's NWO sold-out pay-per-view. Before we get into the show proper, in a dark match before the show, Ice Train defeated Mark Starr. I'm always disappointed when I hear that Ice Train did something and I didn't get to watch it because I'm a big I'm a big <laughs> Ice Train guy. Yeah, so we got the um, that opening uh, like sort of montage where it is explaining some of the matches that we're having tonight. Yes, sir. And and I was just uh, noting that Clash of the Champions has only one championship match. I suppose that's true. Although it uh uh. Well, I was going to say the tag team champions are on the show and they're plural, but I do I get your point. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean Clash of the Champions um I mean at this point you can kind of tell that it's not nearly as valued as it used to be. Yeah. Um and and actually this is the second to last uh Clash of the Champions that we will ever have. Um the one in August will be the the finale uh 35, but yeah, it's just it, it's a little bit um I would just say going into it, it's kind of a lackluster card. And and like you were mentioning, it is sort of like just a bridge between Monday Nitro and sold out on Saturday. Yeah, you can definitely feel, because I think we said a lot of the same things last time. Uh, you can definitely feel that there is a lack of enthusiasm for Clash of the Champions. And it, it, it the focus is on the 12 pay-per-views a year now. So these free shows that they're just giving away on cable are not something that anyone's interested in, at least mm-hmm. in the company anymore. Uh, right. The focus is just so much more on pay-per-view. So, yeah, like you said, August will be the very last one, and then we'll move just to uh, TV and pay-per-view. It was still kind of interesting to see that this is like the tail end of the Clash of the Champions, but it went Monday Nitro clash of the champions then a pay-per-view all within one week which is I, a, a pretty a pretty heavy a really dense of storylines and everything so it's like go home show one go home show two but this go home show was already in place you know it was just kind of odd yeah i would think the pressure not only on the talent but on the production crew who has to you know take this apart and put it up Monday night and then Tuesday night, then get to Cedar Rapids. And as we'll see when we get to sold out, that's a really unique set that's different from what they're used to putting on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not like something that they can just go and and do from muscle memory. Like, it's a completely different setup. Uh, So, yeah, it it does seem like it'd be a, a big strain on the touring company. Now, the show starts with a video package hyping the card, notably listing the six-man tag that we're going to see tonight as Conan, Juventud Guerrera, and Psychosis versus La Parca, Chavo Guerrero, and Super Kalo, which, uh, as you'll see, is not the match we actually end up getting. Now, I'm sure that video package was put together days earlier when they didn't know that some of those guys weren't going to make it because uh, we'll talk about it, but, but several people have visa issues tonight. Mm-hmm. But it does say that we're going to have Dean Malenko versus Ultimo Dragon, which is also a match that only came together in the last few days. Because originally that was supposed to be Ultimo Dragon versus Jushin Liger, but Liger was unable to come in. I'm assuming that there's some sort of visa thing that rolls over at the top of the year, because all of a sudden we're in January and like five guys can't get through the border coming from both Japan and Mexico. So I'm assuming that has something to do 
with the fact that we're in a new year, but I don't know that for a fact. I, I didn't think about that one. Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show, and tonight he'll be joined by Bobby the Brain Heenan, who gets a big weasel chant from the fans. Uh, Bobby, of course, has a long history in Milwaukee because this was an AWA territory. That story where he cut his teeth before going on to WWF. So, you know, big history for Bobby in Wisconsin. And the third man in the booth is Dusty Rhodes, who is shamelessly pandering to the fans, wearing a green and gold Packers jacket. Uh, he is a vocal Cowboys fan, but since the Packers are going to play the Patriots on the Super Bowl this coming Sunday, uh-huh. Dusty is wearing this jacket over a black T-shirt tucked into jeans, which he has no belt on, which always seems very weird to me, especially as a like I'm a, I'm like Dusty. I'm a bigger dude. I don't know how he's walking around without a belt. That would drive me insane. They must would... fit just right, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Previously, when we talked about sold out, sold out, I wonder if they put it on Saturday instead of Sunday because of the Super Bowl. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. They were willing to go up against Raw, but I don't think they want to put a pay-per-view <laughs> up against the Super Bowl. I imagine, Bowl, yeah. So. Especially not back when ratings for a Super Bowl, like, they're still huge now, but back in 97 – it was, you know, double the people tuning in for the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a World Series or something you can get away with, but a lot of the times, like, Super Bowl, get out of here. Tony asked Dusty about the Falls Count Anywhere match tonight, and Dusty says that when he was a kid, it was always big news when someone in the neighborhood would commit domestic assault. And he's pumped tonight that we all get to witness domestic dispute. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby is asked about the Steiners match, the first match that Scott Steiner will participate in going all the way back to September 2nd of last year. Heenan says it will be interesting to see how Steiner looks, given that the team will face the Outsiders on Saturday for the Tag Team Championships. I know a lot of time in my neighborhood, I was just so disappointed I was not seeing enough uh, domestic disputes. <laughs> it's been months. It's <laughs> It's been such a long time. And now, now we get a guaranteed domestic dispute of two men fighting over a woman. <laughs> I can't be more excited to see this. This probably definitely goes along with the reasons I wasn't allowed to watch wrestling when I was younger. <laughs> he talks about it like it's kids uh, telling their friends that the ice cream truck is coming down the street. Like it's that level of excitement. <laughs> right. It just, I mean, obviously you get an idea that like the phrase that he's using has a clearly different definition for him than maybe for like the rest of the world. Pretty much. Yeah, because when he gives an example, he talks about two men fighting over a woman, like we're getting tonight. He he doesn't seem to be describing, like, spouses beating each other up. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it comes across that way in more using the modern definitions anyway. Right. And and Dusty's almost at his, at his real peak right here of just wackiness, you know? And, and uh, like, throughout the night, you'll see it, too. I think I have a couple notes during certain... Just, like... His obscene use of the word plunder and, you know, all the all the (laughs) kooky. He just he really is at a high peak right here. (laughs) With that, we get underway as Dean Malenko makes his way to the ring to try and recapture the cruiserweight title from the man he lost it to back at Starcade several weeks ago, the Ultimo Dragon. Mike Tanay gets added to the broadcast team for this match, and he points out that between Starcade and last night's Nitro, Malenko is 0 for 2 in championship matchups with the Dragon. Dragon makes his way to the ring with Sonny Ono, and uh, as part of his entrance, he blows red mist in the air, which I noticed, and then it made me think back to something we talked about on Nitro, Dave, where we were talking about how we see the red mist in his mouth after matches, and we couldn't figure out why. Mm -hmm. It's because his entrance has been cut off on Nitro a few times now, so we haven't seen him blow the mist when he gets to the ring, 
but that is why the red residue is still there after the match. It's just left over from his entrance. Yeah, because we kept thinking that potentially he just would have poor luck and kept getting like a bloody lip or something like that. But uh, no, that makes a lot more sense other than him like <laughs> yeah. busting the chops every single night, every single night. I saw that he came out and he, he blew the miss, and I was like, what the hell? The camera missed it. Like, why, why'd they cut away from that? Uh, I was wondering why they'd always cut it off because you'd never catch it. <laughs> Mark Curtis shows off the belt doing a little twirl and flashy flip of the belt as he shows it to Malenko. I I thought it was hilarious. I put a gif of it on Twitter. Uh, I actually, in the interview with Dave Penzer, he mentioned seeing that gif because he was friends with Mark Curtis and just thought, like, yeah, that's the kind of shit that he would do just to, like, pop himself or get a laugh out of the people in the back. Like, Mark Curtis is always just kind of doing little goofy things like that, uh, which is <laughs> just part of why I like Mark Curtis so much. Yeah, I love that. That was awesome. I also really like the guy in ringside, uh, or the guy at ringside who has really bad sting makeup on and a homemade t-shirt that says NWO, not. Oh, <laughs> God, he got us. He collectively got us on that. Burn. That's a continuing, uh, continuing theme throughout the night, I feel, too, is if you look in the crowd, you'll just see all these butchered sting faces, you know, with these guys <laughs> yeah. throughout the night, you know, and like, I know Danhausen's kind of popular at the moment, so it's like a definitely like, oh, look at all these people, and it, it kind of relates back to it. But throughout <laughs> the night, just the the sweat taking down all that makeup, it just I would have wondered what it would have been like to be a rowdy teenager with sting makeup on and like the cow palace for me, you know, and like, oh, it, uh, it has to seem like a good idea when you you're putting it on, but two hours into that show, you have to be regretting that decision. <laughs> <laughs> The two men circle and lock up and begin to chain wrestle, trading holds with neither man getting the advantage, and we take our first commercial break, which includes a spot for the NWO hotline. When we return, Dragon and Malenko are circling each other again. Malenko goes for a suplex, but Dragon makes the ropes. Dean kicks him and hits some strikes in the corner to a big reaction. The crowd, huge into this opener. The Iceman hits a nice delayed vertical suplex for a one count and then settles in with a head scissors. Dragon escapes and takes over on offense with his uh, three-kick combination, the kick-kick-jump kick that he always mm -hmm. does. That was the dragon flag. <laughs> and then another loud kick to the seated Malenko's back that sends Dean to the outside. Dean recovers and carefully re-enters the ring. Dragon tries to take advantage, but Malenko hits a few knees to the gut in a side suplex. After working an ankle lock for a bit, Dean starts stomping on the left leg of Dragon and settles into a half-crab. Dragon gets himself up in a push-up position and then uses his right leg to kick out Dean's left leg from under him uh, as a way of escaping the half-crab. I thought that was really cool. I've never seen that particular escape from that hold before. Yeah, that was really nice. It was very fluid. A lot of this is very fluid. These were yes. probably, um, probably the, you know, I keep using the peak a lot because a lot of these guys, I felt like this was really on that really um, high level of where, you know, Dean Malenko was at as, as peak um, ultimate dragon was heavy, you know, WCW versus the world was real heavy at the time. And so it's like, I, or not, or world tour, my bad. And I would always play as Ultimo dragon, you know? And so a yeah. lot of the move set that he had in the, in the game immediately mimics a lot of the, the spots that were happening in this match. Yeah, Ultimo Dragon at this point in 97, and, and we're really just watching WCW, although we catch a little bit of Raw when we watch that to compare and watch a little bit of like uh, the January 4th, 1997 
Tokyo Dome show. But as far as the stuff that we're watching mainly, like Ultimo Dragon right now, I think it's safe to say he's my absolute favorite wrestler to watch. He's so, so much fun. Fluid, like you said, that's exactly the right word to describe his his style of wrestling. And there's probably nobody in there. It's got to be either Malenko or Rey Mysterio that are the two guys you want to see him face the most. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, I thought it was also a little interesting note how they were really putting over the J-Crown, you know, because I know they had the ties with Japan at the time and um, they were putting over the J crown, but how WCW belt wasn't a part of it, you know, and that's why he still had it because he lost the J crown. Right. And yep. It was, it was kind of like a, a little reach right there into this, the really early day people that might, might've known that, you know, because why are they even talking about that at the time? You didn't really have people that knew what the J crown was, unless you were, you know, a really early day, um, tape trader or this or that, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. The casual fan wouldn't know. Although when dragon comes out on the past few nitros, when he had the J crown, he has like all eight belts with him. So even if you don't really know what it's about, I think it's like, didn't that guy have 12 belts last week? So I think they, that they're explaining, you know, yeah, he lost all those titles and, I don't think they're going to reappear at WCW because Liger's got him now and he won't be back in WCW for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know where that title goes. Uh, I, I don't know how long the J-Crown lasts as like a, a unified title, but be interesting to find out. It's by the the end of the year, I think like uh, October or November, it ends up being all vacated. That's also in relation to uh, WWF realizing that they still had the light heavyweight title. Oh, that's uh-huh. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're like, they're like, oh, we're gonna bring it back, and we realize that we have an active one in Japan somewhere, so we should probably put a kibosh on that. So it is like towards the end of the year that the J Crown eventually comes apart. Uh, so I'm fairly confident that we don't see it anymore in WCW. That has to be the the stake in the heart is the WWF wanted their title back, <laughs> which I think is a fair request, by the way. Uh, so, yeah, as as Dragon tr- escapes the Boston Crab, Dean manages to at least keep hold of the leg. He puts it in a grapevine. But now that he's on his back, Dragon is able to kick at Malenko with his free leg, doing some damage on Dean until eventually Dragon reaches the ropes, forcing a break. Dean keeps up the pressure on Dragon's leg with a shin breaker and another submission attempt. He tries for a pin and gets a two count. Back on their feet, the two exchange forearms and elbows until Dean casually dumps Dragon on the outside. Heenan questions the strategy, pointing out that uh, Malenko has been completely in control and probably shouldn't send Dragon to the outside where he can get some much-needed time to recuperate. Dean isn't going to let Dragon rest, though. He also rolls out of the ring and puts Dragon's foot up on the guardrail and then kicks the rail, doing more damage to Dragon's leg. Malenko points over at Sonny Ono menacingly and then rolls Dragon back in the ring where he slaps on the figure four but Dragon is able to counter the hold's full effect by holding Dean's left foot up in the air so he can't cinch it down. That was another cool counter. Yeah. I feel like I may have seen that once or twice, but it's not something you normally see in a figure four. That was very cool. Yeah, I thought that was a very nice touch. That was probably one of the main notes I had was that, you know, he just had that little aspect of trying to wait on it just to get a little bit more out of it, you know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. was like a really nice touch just to uh, what makes professional wrestling great. 
this match has a lot of like it's kind of become a staple of Malenko matches because we've seen him have so many matches with Mysterio and every time they really work in a lot of spots that show that they are adapting to each other and they're learning what each other's moves are so you see a lot more counters the more they wrestle each other and we're starting to see that now with Malenko and Dragon Mm -hmm. where yeah we saw them at Starcade and we saw them on Nitro last night and now they're learning each other and they've got all these cool counters for each other that they didn't have if you went back to their first couple matchups yeah they're starting to learn each other and feel each other out a little bit more yeah and I remember from like their first or second matchup on Nitro that uh, like the kind of the story was that Malenko was very frustrated with Ultimo Dragon's like offense, like he just could not figure it out, and and I'm sure mm-hmm. now because like they emphasize this idea that Ultimo Dragon like he has Malenko's number, so like Malenko has more motiv- he has more motivation not just getting back the cruiserweight title, but finally one upping Ultimo Dragon because he, I mean he's like uh zero two this month. But I feel like Ultimate Dragon probably won those other matches too. So Malenko kind of wanted to get like that one extra feather in his cap of like defeating Ultimate Dragon. Dean eventually gets the figure four in but keeps it on for only a moment before letting Dragon go and the two return to their feet. Malenko whips Dragon into a corner following close behind with a running lariat. Dragon gets a glimmer of hope when he's able to whip Malenko into the corner opposite and follows that with a jumping back kick. Dragon tries to go upstairs, but Dean recovers and gets a superplex to a huge reaction. Honestly, it might be pop of the night. It might be the biggest pop of the entire show is that superplex. They go nuts. These guys definitely were in the right spot of an opener. You know, they're coming in and this crowd is just so red hot in this era, no matter what they're going to put out. But then if you put out a, a good match also, it just emphasized it all. So these guys were really into that. Yeah, I think it's a uh, spoiler alert for the rest of the show. The crowd stays hot the entire show, but I think they're the hottest for this match. I think this is like the noisiest the crowd gets. Hmm. And it starts a little slow and then it builds and builds and they are going nuts uh, for Malenko by the time this one's over. And we've had now a few shows where it's been like that. I felt like the last couple of Nitros have been, we had the same impression where the fans were like just really hot for however the show begins, but also have just added a lot to the shows in general. Like with the, with them having these bigger audiences have kind of really uh, improved like these reactions and the way that the matches come off on television. Dragon ducks a Malenko clothesline and throws a kick, but Malenko catches his foot. They try some transition. I I don't know what the plan was exactly. It, It doesn't quite work, but Dean covers for it very well by quickly transitioning into setting Dragon up for a powerbomb instead. The crowd is roaring for the powerbomb, but Dragon counters it into a Herkarana, holding onto the legs for a two count. Dragon reverses an Irish whip and sends Dean into the corner. Dean hops the ropes to the apron, but Dragon plants him on the floor with a springboard dropkick. He tries to follow up with a plancha, but Malenko dodges and kicks him in the gut. Both men try to whip each other into the guardrail, with Dragon winning the battle and laying Malenko out on the floor. When Malenko gets to his feet, he is greeted with the Acai Moonsault, a move that Dusty acts like he's never heard of before, even though Tanae just explained it to him at Starcade in, like, a <laughs> memorable moment. Right. And once Shivani is like, yeah, that's the Acai Moonsault, Dusty, then Dusty's like, oh, yeah, of course, I, re- I remember, baby. Oh, yeah, I remember that move now. Mike Tanae told me because he's the Lucha Libre specialist. <laughs> he, like... He he was playing that he didn't know it, but as soon as as soon as he looked 
like Shivani knew something he didn't. He just couldn't let that stand. <laughs> right. Dusty being dusty, just like, oh, baby, that's something <laughs> new and experiential right there. It's so wild. <laughs> dusty, you saw that last night? Oh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> Back in the ring, Dragon hits a suplex and a moonsault for a near fall. Dragon sets up Dean on the top rope and hits a top rope rana but can't cover. Dean blocks a tiger suplex, the move Dragon used to win the title from him at Starcade, and counters it into a setup for the Texas Cloverleaf, but Dragon surprises him with a small package for two. Dean tries a powerbomb a second time, but Dragon manages to flip over and land on his feet, so Malenko follows up with a clothesline. A third go at a powerbomb is successful, and Dean looks to seal the match with the Cloverleaf. Sonny Ono remembers that every time these two have faced each other, he gets on the apron and Dean lets go and chases him down, so he gets on the apron, and Dean does exactly that, only this time he manages to waffle Ono in the mush with a forearm that sends Ono sprawling to the floor. Dragon tries to catch Dean with a kick as Malenko turns around, but this time Dean is expecting it, and he catches the kick, sweeps the leg, and locks in the cloverleaf. I liked how when that all happened, right, um, Malenko dropped him, he biffed Ono, and then Dusty's yelling at him from, from commentators like, Dean, turn around and get him! Get him now, Dean! <laughs> he's a, you know, he's a USA guy, Dusty. He wants to see that belt on an American. Oh, definitely. He's the man of a thousand holes. <laughs> Dragon resists for a bit, but he finally can't withstand the pain and submits, and Dean Malenko becomes the first ever three-time cruiserweight champion after about 15 minutes of fantastic action. Uh, what did you guys think of the match? Levi, why don't we start with you? Uh, I loved it. I thought it was it was really great. Um, the canvas, you know, I'm always a big fan of that WCW canvas, probably in my top three. Uh Excellent back and forth, great, you know, all around, five stars for me. I thought it was a perfect opener for the show and a great way to get me excited for the rest of it. Dave, how about you? Yeah, I thought the match was phenomenal. Um, and just, I mean, I we have had situations before, especially on Nitro, in which we've had, like, maybe, like, Mysterio or Malenko or Guerrero and Malenko, in which it was, like, yeah, you felt like they had a good match, but not quite like the what they were capable of. Um, in which this is this is different than that because I felt like these are both guys just uh, given their all to have just a fantastic, uh, exciting opener. Um, I I like and I like the way that it played out because not only was it Malenko defeating Ultimo Dragon finally, but he was also he also thwarted the obstacle of Sonny Ono, which every time seemed to have cost him. So not only has he won the championship back, but he has like this definitive victory over Ultimo Dragon. So there's not like any question as far as like who the top guy in the cruiserweight division is now. Um, yeah, it was just, it was such, such a good match. Um, nothing. I, there's not anything I could really say negative about it. Yeah. Uh, I'm right there with you guys. I thought that it was crisp and fun it uh, it had those staples, like I said, of Malenko return matches where he they throw in a bunch of counters. I liked it a lot more than their Starcade match, uh, and I think they really mm -hmm. tore the house down. This was an excellent, excellent match. I love the crowd, too. Um, you know, you can have that awesome match in a setting that wouldn't have this crowd. All, you know, in this era, all the crowds were really good. Mm -hmm. But still, when you just have that deafening roar from all these crazy, you know, Generation X guys... And girls, you know, they're just at the neck because their face paint is sweating off and it's the first <laughs> match. It's just, 
they're so ready for the night. You know, it just made it made it that much better, and I'm sure it helped them in the ring too. After replays inform us that the finish to that match was the Pep Boys Power Pin of the Week, we take a break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Mike Enos and Scotty Riggs are in the ring, and Scott Dickinson calls for the bell. Enos sneak attacks Riggs to start, but Riggs tags him with an elbow and gets most of the early offense. Uh, Riggs whips Enos over the top rope by putting an extra 360 spin on his Irish whip. Dosey dose. <laughs> You don't see that too much, but it, I mean, it was effective. It made him run faster and go over the rope. So I guess more power to you, Scotty Riggs. Uh, Riggs hits a plancha and they fight on the floor for a moment where Enos gets the advantage and uses Riggs as a stepping stone to get back in the ring. That was a great heel touch that I liked a lot. Yeah, that dive out was, was pretty wild, too. I, I want to just put a little stamp on that. It was a little dosey do whip and then a real wild plancha. I would barely call it that from. <laughs> Enos gets a flying clothesline from the apron to the floor and really like there's a they connect strongly on that one that is a snug flying clothesline definitely Riggs back body drops Enos on the floor and then they head back in the ring Enos hits a belly to belly which I'm always happy when I see Mike Enos hit a belly to belly that's that's kind of what he's here for he's a guy that can throw guys around but then Riggs wins kind of almost out of nowhere with a flying forearm off the ropes, which mm-hmm. that was I was not expecting that to be the finish. Uh, they had just started building up that he was going to be doing the fisherman suplex, uh, which is also Buff's finisher, and he was going to be calling it the Americplex. But instead, he comes off with like what Luger uses as a setup move. I I thought that was really weird. Um, so that's about it. It's it's pretty short and it's fine but this is this is just something you could have seen in any quick segment on nitro uh it it didn't belong on a card that is like ostensibly supposed to be special in my mind uh i don't know what you guys think dave how about you um well they're continuing uh building up scotty riggs for his match against buff bagwell at sold out in which we're now at the point where it's like yeah but we've seen like three or four matches like this for riggs but we have not seen Buff Bagwell wrestle. <laughs> right. Yeah, since he turned uh, joined the NWO, we have not seen him uh, once. I don't even think on Saturday night I don't think he's wrestled. I, I know. I believe he wrestled on, like, the NWO version of Saturday night. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. But but that's a, that's about it. Um, yeah, and I thought it was kind of weird that he didn't they didn't continue on the story of him using the Ameriplex or whatever you want to call it. Um, maybe it's just like, it's Mike Enos. There's not a lot of confidence that he could go up and over correctly for that. So maybe they just went with something a little bit simpler. Um, and yeah, this was I. This was a match that I was kind of like partially paying attention to, but it did. <laughs> it did seem like that that finish came like very abruptly. And I'm also getting. I kind of got the impression that Buff Bagwell was not even at the arena for this show tonight because you would think yeah. that he would have shown up because he has done that before um but this uh, not not tonight but other than that it's like it's enhancement it's enhancement work for scotty riggs which is probably like mike enos is wondering about his like career decisions if that's what he's come to at this point in his career <laughs> <laughs> levi what do you think that was kind of my note was that um when we came back from break i was already upset that they were in the ring because i didn't get to hear the american male song <laughs> you know mike enos has kind of a banger theme song too it's a it's, it's not as funny or as iconic as the american males but it's like got a weird uh 
good, the bad, and the ugly kind of vibe with like a whistle and a western thing going on. I I really like Mike Enos's music. I'll have to go back and check that out because <laughs> you don't really consider Mike Enos bangers back in that time. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which kind of leads into my other note was that I was already upset that it was Mike Enos and it wasn't the Beverly brother. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I thought it was, it was kind of, um, kind of odd and it was going a little long, I thought. And then right when I was like, Oh man, this is kind of taking a while. And then it just ended. I was like, Oh, that's kind of out of nowhere, but you know, they probably were like, okay, well, you know, your time's up boys. <laughs> All right, well, with that, we head to commercial, and after the break, Mean Gene is in the aisle for another segment of the soap opera that has become The Four Horsemen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back here on TBS with more of the Clash of the Champions. We're in Milwaukee. This city is red hot. As they get ready for the Sunday in the Super Bowl, the Green Bay Packers are just like a hometown team. Please join me, ladies and gentlemen, in welcoming the Four Horsemen. Gentlemen, I could not help but notice, and ladies, for that matter, this morning at a very prominent Chicago hotel restaurant, a summit meeting of the Four Horsemen. Apparently a meeting of the minds, and we're back together again. Is that the case, Chris Benoit? The Horsemen will dominate in 97. Kevin Sullivan, I hope you're watching. You're looking directly into your fate, into your destiny, yes. I've got total control of your fate, your destiny. I can take away whatever I want of yours anytime I please. You call this a chess game? You say that I made this personal? <laughs> That's irrelevant. I'm beating you, Sullivan. I'm beating you physically. I'm beating you mentally. I'm beating you spiritually. You're looking at a Wolverine that has tasted blood. And when I don't get what I want, I cripple. I've got a very fragile mind, Sullivan. I'm gonna destroy you. I'm gonna take away everything you have. The last thing I'm gonna take away from you will be your career. All right, it uh, seems at least, Art Anderson, that uh, uh, you gentlemen are focused here. He's thinking about his upcoming match with Benoit. The horsemen are getting their act together again, so to speak. The fact is, Sullivan, this man reached in and he ripped the heart right out of your chest. That's ancient history. Tonight, you're going to see how the horsemen operate. All I'm asking you, Benoit, because it wasn't that long ago when Sullivan cracked me with a chair, is just finish off the rest of the carcass. All right, uh, Steve Mongo McMichael, speaking of horseman style, you seem to fit in very well. Listen up, you Limburger losers! <laughs> you know, there's a pretty famous guy once said here in Wisconsin, when it ain't everything, it's the only thing! 
And Kevin Sullivan, you little toad. Can you see the look in that man's eye? That's a horseman. These two have ripped your heart out. Now they're coming out to throw it on the ground. Stop it and squeeze the life out of it, my friend. You're through. Tonight is horseman time, baby. All right, apparently all for one and one for all. The horseman certainly backing up Chris Benoit. His effort coming up tonight against uh, the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan. Yes, Deborah, you were going to say something? Oh, no. You know, I'm just having a great time with these lovely people here. And, well, you know, Gene, I don't mean to be catty or anything like that. But, you know, they do happen to call me the queen of the WCW because I am very beautiful and, of course, very young. Well, well, they happen to call woman the Queen of Sheba because she's been dead for over 2,000 years and looks it. Oh, please, give me a break. Thank you very much. They also call Leona Helmsley the Queen. Thank you. Let's go back to uh, the ring for more action. Well, Deborah McMichael is one in the Benoit and Woman enter with Mongo and Deborah behind them. Arn takes up the rear. Ric Flair had been advertised for this event, but is not actually here. Uh, same with Hulk Hogan, incidentally. People in the building believed those people would be there, uh, but they're not. <laughs> Benoit starts off by saying that the Horsemen will dominate in 1997. The crowd chants, We want Flair, as Benoit says that Sullivan is looking at his fate and his destiny, and it's Benoit who's in control of both. Benoit says that Sullivan claims this is a chess game and also claims that Benoit made it personal, but those claims are irrelevant. He promises to beat Sullivan physically, mentally, and spiritually because he's a Wolverine who has tasted blood. I gotta say, it was just our last Nitro that I was putting over how much better Benoit is on promos than when he started. Mm. I don't know that I would say that this week. I, I thought he was real stilted, yep. and what he was saying, like... You say this is a chess game and I made it personal, but that's irrelevant. But it's not irrelevant. That's like the whole point. And he's Benoit has also been saying a bunch of the chess stuff. So just all of a sudden declaring that irrelevant is I it whatever point he was trying to make did not come across to me. I thought this was a real weak promo by Benoit. Yeah, it's sort of uh two steps forward, one step back for Benoit when it comes to his promos. I don't Yeah, I didn't I didn't it. really think this promo aged too well, to be honest. That was kind of my entire feel off of it it was just uh they all come in you know popped on the arn and this you know the slacks and everything kind of being the dad of the four horsemen right here because mongo and uh and benoit are obviously you know the young ones and they're all you know at each other's necks and mongo you know well actually like a real interesting tidbit was that you know mongo was at wrestlemania 11 or um back in 95 and so he already had connections with WWF and then ended up not working with them. You know, I think it was because they didn't want to pay him to train essentially. Right. Um, when WCW would. And then, so, you know, just kind of having that here and just, um, yeah, promo didn't really age well to me. Yeah. For his part, uh, Mongo gets on the mic, the crowd boos loudly uh, they start chanting Bears Suck at Mongo, apparently forgetting or not caring that he finished his career with an unremarkable 1994 season playing for the Packers. They but, don't care. <laughs> yeah, they well, don't. 
I mean, he had like a memorable 12 years in Chicago and one shitty year in Green Bay. So I, I can understand their point of view. Yeah, fair enough. Did he have the same number in Green Bay as he did in Chicago? That's a good question. I have, uh, I don't know. What was he, 76, I want to say? Yeah, because yes. it's, it's on his gimmicks, I believe. Uh, no, he did not. He wore number 90. Yeah, so he was repping his Chicago number. And good. Good on the fans of Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, oh, Mongo's not on the mic yet. I stepped. I got ahead. Uh, Benoit says that he has a very fragile mind, and when he doesn't get what he wants, he cripples. He promises to take away everything Sullivan has, ending with the Taskmaster's career. Okerlin then asks Arn if the horsemen finally have their act together, but Arn ignores the question and instead asks Benoit to finish off Sullivan, as the Enforcer is still mad about the chair shot he recently received from Sullivan. Gene turns to Mongo, and the boos intensify immediately, and Mongo yells at the Limburger losers in the crowd to listen up. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <Heat>. <laughs> He says uh, that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, and incorrectly attributes that quote to legendary Packers coach Vince Lombardi. Although Lombardi popularized that saying and is often mistakenly given credit for it, it was actually coined by UCLA coach Red Sanders. Anyway, Mongo warns uh, the little toad, Kevin Sullivan, that Benoit is a horseman and he's here to rip out Sullivan's heart, stomp on it, and squeeze the life out of it. Tonight is horseman time, baby. The horsemen finally seem on the same page, and they leave, except for Mongo and Deborah. Deborah, who has now crowned herself the queen of WCW, says that she doesn't want to be catty, but she earned her crown for being very beautiful and very young. She then says that woman is more like the queen of Sheba because she's been dead for over 2,000 years and looks it. Whoa. <laughs> Oof, that was rough. Yeah. Now, if you're curious, woman is four years younger than Deborah McMichael. <laughs> it's the it's the obliviousness that really just seals it all. Gene closes comparing Deborah to Leona Helmsley, a famous American businesswoman and convicted tax cheat who is known as the Queen of Mean. Uh, she's also famous for leaving twelve million dollars of her four billion dollar fortune to her dog when she died in two thousand seven. Oh wow! Good for her. Good for her. $12 million for a dog. It's, oh boy. <laughs> That's something. We then get some new music that we haven't heard before. It's a, it's Mexican rap, and out comes the trios team of Conan, La Parca, and JL. Now, I know that Conan does some rap that will eventually show up on Nitro. Was this Conan rapping his theme? Do either of you guys know? Because it sounded like it could have been. Yeah, I don't know for sure, but he was doing the gimmick already, so it is possible. Now, JL's spot in this match was originally for Psychosis, who had visa problems. Then Jericho's music plays, and out he comes with Super Kolo and Chavo Guerrero Jr. Jericho is also a replacement in this match, subbing for Juventud Guerrero, who also had visa problems. Tony lets us know of the changes, although he gives fake reasons. Uh, well, actually, he doesn't give any reason. He just says Juventud didn't show up, and they don't know why. And then he says that Psychosis was recently injured in Mexico at the hands of La Parca, which is kind of a weird thing to say because La Parca and Psychosis were supposed to be teammates tonight. <laughs> Tanay puts over the opportunity for American fans to watch a six-man... Oh, Tanay puts over an opportunity for American fans to watch a six-man tag, which he calls the foundation of Lucha Libre in Mexico. And here to call all the action of this one is the foundation of our podcast, Dave Amatorp. 
All right. So we begin this match with uh, JL, who I always had to change in my notes because I kept wanting to write Mr. JL, but realized that they no longer give him that formal title. It's a real Vince McMahon thing. They robbed him of his first name, but his first name was Mr. Right. <laughs> oh, I totally had him as Mr. JL in my notes, too. I missed that completely. Yeah. Yeah. He he showed up a week or so ago, and just for no – there's no explanation or anything. He's just JL now. Um, and that kind of like – sometimes it throws off announcers because they'll just refer to him as, like, Mr. JL anyway. You get mm-hmm. you get lots of different examples like that with uh, M. Wall Street. <laughs> As far as, like, uh, announcers yes. not being uh, in tune with, like, whatever the moniker is at that point. Mm-hmm. But either way, JL is, uh, he starts off the match with Chavo Guerrero Jr. The two men trade off moves until Chavo gains upper hand with a flying forearm and a dropkick. Uh, both men then tag in Conan and Super Calo, who enters via a roll off the top turnbuckle, which looked pretty sweet. Uh, I love Super Calo. Yeah, he's great. He's great. Cosigns so much. He's probably my favorite of them all. Well, you know, they're all great in this match, but like the beanie, the glasses, and just the flavor that that he brought was so cool. And I I he Kolo competes with psychosis as far as the guys that are like just have no regards for gaining any sort of injuries during their matches. Yeah, they go balls out uh, no matter what no matter how long the match is, no matter where it is in the card, they go full bore every time. Yeah, you see a little bit of that later in this match, too, actually. Yeah. Uh, Conan, when he gets in the ring, he uh, tries to get the crowd fired up, um, who are very responsive to him. Uh, Conan tries to overwhelm Super Kolo with a series of arm drags, but his execution is just, like, really slow because it's Conan. He's not as quick as Super Kolo. Uh, Super Kolo comes back with a flying head scissors takedown off the top rope and a drop kick. Uh, so then both men turn to the respective corners, and now we have Laparka and Chris Jericho tagged in. They collide with a double shoulder tackle, and Laparka reacts by screaming like a banshee, in which, like, you could very clearly hear it. It's just the craziest sound that he makes. <laughs> here comes Laparka and Chris Jericho, the exchange yeah. on both ends. It's a good matchup right here, I think. Well, I, I, you know, Jericho, I believe, got more power than anybody in there. I believe he possesses more strength. You know, he just upper body strength. And, and I think he brings that to the table. Yeah. Did you hear that squeal? Well, LaParka, that mask and outfit, as we see him take Jericho One, over and get the cover. Two, got a two count. That mask and outfit are patterned after a spiritual character from Mexico's Day of the Dead. It's a Halloween-like tradition. Back elbows. That was a banshee-like scream, I guess. Yeah, he's screaming like a banshee, and he could be... Um, I'm also, at this point, I'm distracted by how lean LaParka looks here. Because if you, because he's in WCW for the next few years, and even like later on in '97, he'll have gained like visible weight. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just thinking the same. He was, he was there, and he was looking so fit compared to even now or as later on in the year, where he was a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. Must, must have been a lot of beer. Right. Um, these two trade off moves until Jericho hits a second rope missile dropkick. Um, after that, tags and double teams are the law of the land as Chavo Guerrero Jr. enters after Conan simply comes in once LaParka headed to ringside. <laughs> yeah, they definitely, they're doing a six-man Lucha-style match and they just go full bore with the Lucha-style tag rules. Just come in when you feel like it, as long mm-hmm. as someone else leaves sometime soon after that. Yeah, cluster rules applied. Yes, Absolutely. 
Uh, Conan and Laparka double team Chavo, executing a pretty cool looking double leapfrog into a double clothesline. Uh, then Chav, then Conan uh, sets Chavo on his shoulders for Laparka to hit him with a senton from the top turnbuckle. So there's a, th- those two got a, they got a little bit of chemistry here when it comes to the double team moves because those are both pretty sweet. Yeah, that was uh, a pretty a pretty heavy Laparka coming off with I kind of quoted it whisper in the wind. Because yeah, um, yeah. he kind of gave it that. <clears throat> that was a really kind of heavy landing too. I was like, oh my! I, I leveled it with the uh, the Zandig. Jesus gift. <laughs> uh, so now we have Conan and JL trying to double team Jericho, but Jericho fights it off, knocking Conan to the arena floor before hitting him with a flying cross body block. Now we get into the segment where every man in the match hits a fly maneuver to the floor. Uh, culminating what I believe you were referring to earlier of Super Colo hitting Laparka with a flying senton from yeah, like the top rope. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he like he loves that that senton to the ground, which is just like landing on his shoulders or his head or just like landing flat on his back. It just it always looks rough. That's a real popular luchador um, bump that I see them take a lot. You know, I was real worried about it along uh, a lot. You know, and. I did one one time, not like to that level, you know, but uh, I was like on the second rope uh, and they were on the floor and I kind of did. And it's like, it's the roll with it. Right. But like, man, those ones to the outside. And that's why he was the best man. And he did it with the glasses (laughs) and the beanie on the whole time. (laughs) I liked, um, I liked Bobby, the brains comment that he had too. was like, they're all diving, you know, and they're all throwing themselves out. And Brain's like, oh, my God, I'm going to get in the ring and jump off the top rope and throw myself to the floor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was <laughs> suggesting, like, it was his turn. And for, like, <laughs> could someone, like, yeah, hold my headset. I'm going to go in there. And he I, he I felt like he was trying to try to get Tony to be like, that's a bad idea. But no one, like, really says anything. Yeah. It's like Dusty thought he was kind of trying to shit on, you know, or, you know, poop yeah. on him and stuff like that. And then they just kind of banter back and forth when – um really yeah bobby was just adding to it all and just kind of feeling it so we had the moment where all the wrestlers hit their fly moves to the floor uh so while super clone and laparka are basically just laying there recovering from their high-risk maneuvers uh conan and chavo brawl on the other side of the ring and chris jericho and jl get back into the ring where chris jericho hits a like standing super hurricanrana off the top rope to gain the pinfall victory uh, yeah, this was a, I mean, it's about five minutes long, very high impact, like high impact, uh, high, uh, high paced match. Um, you got to see everyone do a little bit of everything. I felt like it, for the short period of time it was, it was a really good showcase uh, for everyone that was involved. Yeah, I really, I really liked it. I thought it was a good, you know, um, showing for Lucha at the time and everything. They didn't really have the cruiserweight division was really technical, you know, and they had Ultimo and stuff that had some high flying and stuff like that, but it was real cool to kind of let the the rules down a little bit. And they, you know, it was a little bit of a cluster, but that's really what Lucha, you know, really gets exciting with, you know, one thing here, one thing there, and then the dives. And mm-hmm. uh, I thought it was really cool. Yeah. This was a, a good encapsulation of sort of what I see a lot of from Lucha is like, sure. It was a little bit sloppy, but it was really fun and the crowd loved it. Um, I wouldn't have minded it going longer, if anything. It was it was a really fun match. Yeah, we could have probably took out the um, 
Mike Enos match and then just give yes. this match more time. <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting, uh, because we have not seen this before, really anything like it, but there was a little bit of a vocal Jericho sucks chant when he first came in. He completely won them over by the end. They were going nuts for him. Um, and he was it, it was yeah. never like everyone was booing him. You know, he was getting he was getting a lot of cheers as well right at the beginning. But I just noticed some people chanting Jericho sucks. And and that was new. We have not seen that on any Nitro or anything. Yeah, there's uh, I mean, it's not like overwhelming or anything like that. But there is definitely a contingency of a smart crowd um, at the show yes. tonight. It's not nearly as bad as Chicago was uh, on Nitro last night. But there's a little bit yeah. of the look how look how much of a smart fan I am kind of cheering for sure. Yeah. And this is, this is probably really the first kind of inkling of a lot of that coming in, you know, obviously there was some kind of smarter fans in the later eighties and stuff too. Right. But isn't this one really like the first generation of internet fans were kind of really slowly coming in? Like, I mean, isn't internet like maybe a year old at this point, you know I mean? AOL and stuff like that. Certainly like consumer internet that, a person might just have at their house was a very new concept at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, raw has been on for like four years and for the majority, it's like raw fans are like, they sit and they cheer appropriately. And that's kind of what we've been used to for like Monday nights and for like wrestling up to this point, like late 96, uh, like late 96, early 97 is kind of the earliest we're going to start seeing, especially with the, um, I feel like the, the, "Quote unquote rise of the Smarks" is associated with like the rise of ECW. Yeah, and we definitely of, see ECW yeah, kind of, chance at some of the, especially the live Raws where they can't edit it off yet. Yeah, that makes sense too. You know, the rise of the ECW fans and everything; those were the real hardcore tape traders and the ones that wanted to find the true alternatives per se. Mm. Mm-hmm. We see replays of the highlights, and Heenan puts over Jericho. Then Tanae is dismissed from the broadcast team, and we had to break. <laughs> it is so Fuck. funny the way. <laughs> Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I liked. I liked the uh, at the very beginning of the show, like they had him in for the opening match, but he couldn't even be there for like the standing yeah. around talking about yeah. the show. Like they did that, then he was allowed at the table for with the. Yeah, rest you of the never guys. actually see him like when they do their stand up at the beginning. He just you hear <laughs> right. his disembodied voice, and then eventually someone tells him to leave. So by the time you that you see the announcers again, he's not with them. <laughs> right. Wow, the hate flows heavy. <laughs> <laughs> when we return, entrances have once again been skipped, and the teams of Harlem Heat and Joe Gomez and the Renegade are already in the ring. The bell rings, and we are quickly underway, and it's Booker and Gomez who start off with Booker firmly in control. When Gomez gets some strikes, Stevie Ray just walks into the ring and becomes the legal man. I guess the the lucha <laughs> rules are like left over somehow. <laughs> right. He starts fighting with Gomez. Booker leaves, and Scott Dickinson is going to allow this. Scoop slam and stomps by Stevie, who tags in Booker for a clubbering blow and a jumping kick. Tony plugs tickets going on sale for upcoming shows at the Cow Palace over in Levi's neighborhood. Hey, hey uh, I've wrestled there. All right. Oh, nice. Cool. Did you ever see a WCW or WWF show there? Or uh, New Japan was there a couple of years ago, weren't they? Yeah, I have. I did see the New Japan show. I saw one WWF, two WWF house shows. 
um but i didn't i didn't see see that was the thing was like i watched wcw yeah but it, when super brawl came around i'd be like oh wait it's at the cow palace but my my parents would never want to bring me <laughs> gotcha <laughs> uh tickets also going on sale at the arco arena in sacramento the omni in atlanta now all those venues are around 15 to 17,000 for wrestling uh so that's why i pointed out because it just shows that the trend that we've seen in recent weeks of Nitro and WCW shows from bigger venues mm-hmm. is definitely something that has been successful and is something that is going to continue. Oh, Go cool. Ahead. So this this is really their kind of intro into those bigger arenas at this time. Yeah, it was about uh, it was Nitro two weeks ago. They were from the Superdome down in New Orleans. And then a week ago, they were at the United Center in Chicago. Uh, so, yeah, they are like it's it's like a flip got switched and all of a sudden they are running much bigger arenas. Oh, that's cool. That's something you never really think about. Yeah, basically, it's like once 1997 came around, they're like, this calendar year, we're just going to up our, we're going to up the game as far as, <laughs> yeah. like, where we're going. And, yeah, it's like you immediately saw that, like, they go to a somewhat bigger arena, they can fill it, like, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Gomez tries a roll-up for two. Booker lariats him and brings in Stevie for a double suplex for two. Stevie dumps Gomez to the outside so Sherry can hit him in the throat. Bobby says that Gomez and Renegade haven't been together as long as Harlem Heat, and Dusty says, well, they could have been together for years, and they still would never be able to beat Harlem Heat. Oh, dang. Yeah, they're they're making no bones about, like, even pretending that Joe Gomez and the Renegade have a shot in this match. Right, yes. <laughs> Joe Gomez with the awesome gear that would tear your flesh up. <laughs> yeah, those metal buckles. I never thought about that, yeah. From a worker's perspective, that's got to be a nightmare to, to avoid. Oh yeah, I, I was, I'm I'm sure I'm sure it was okay, but the, that was one of the first things that I caught was like, what's this guy wearing? And you know, I was like, <laughs> oh man. Stevie Ray brings Gomez back into the ring and drops the leg on him. He tags in Booker, who hits a scissor kick and pumps up the crowd. Booker tries for a second rope guillotine leg drop, but Gomez moves out of the way. Gomez makes the big tag to Renegade, who runs some lesser degree of wild with punches and a back body drop. (laughs) He's eventually brought down by a kick from Booker. The Heat then hit the Heat Seeker for the easy win. Uh, This was, you know, just a showcase match for Harlem Heat, which is kind of interesting because uh, they don't even have a match at sold out. They're not like Scotty Riggs where you're like, well, that was kind of boring and not very good, but I get why it was on the show. Yeah. I don't know what they're building Harlem Heat for. I, I like Harlem Heat. I-, I never want to complain that they're getting victories, but the to- using the time on this show for a Harlem Heat enhancement match, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Uh, what about you, Levi? What do you think? Uh, I thought it was a good a good little addition. You know, I'm sure coming back after that six man, they needed kind of just something to kind of um, direct it along a little bit more. I'm sure, I don't know exactly where Harlem Heat goes in the future, but it definitely looked as like a proper enhancement to keep them strong, you know, or just even in the in the eyes, you know. Um, a lot of the times out of sight, out of mind comes into play. So I'm sure the brass were just thinking, you know, like, hey, we got Harlem Heat, they're good. They're, they looked crisp, you know. Sherry mm-hmm. was looking awesome sherry leveled um was that leveled gomez with that stiff forearm um and uh it, it was just a it was a solid placement i thought it was good going into um you know to kind of elongate the mid card you know because I'm, I'm pretty sure they had the idea of 
the dragon Malenko match being like really awesome and really starting the show. And I think that's one of the longer matches on the card. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and so, you know, kind of after that, they, you know, they have Scotty Riggs and Enos and then the six man, which was cool, but still kind of filler, you know, and then this match, and then it just kind of fills out the card instead of having just maybe five matches or something. Dave, what'd you think? I, I, I'd really have no thoughts about this match because it's Harlem Heat <laughs> just beating a couple of jabronis for, um, I, I mean, like you guys are mentioning, like, uh, I mean, they have in recent weeks kind of been getting Harlem Heat some wins, wins with different uh, double team finishers, as we've talked about before. But it's not there's not a, a clear indication as far as like the the championship picture is concerned, um, mm-hmm. since the Steiner brothers are the ones that are going for the tag titles. Um, yeah, I don't really know what their place is right now for Harlem Heat, but uh, at least they're making sure they're getting them on TV and keep them winning. So maybe there'll be, maybe it'll be the people that go after the, uh, the winners of that. I mean, maybe maybe, maybe they'll be like the Super Brawl, um, a championship sure. opponent. Then that would make then that would make sense. But if mm-hmm. if that's not the case, then I'm not exactly sure what this is, what this match is, why this match is on the show. Because who's the tag champs right now are. The outside and hall, right? Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, I mean, I'm maybe just looking too much of a, you know, insider perspective, but, you know, there, the Steiners are getting built up. Let's say they want to have the Steiners. So then they have Harlem Heat as a strong contenders just to have shoe in, you know, because mm-hmm. Nash and Hall don't exactly need the tag team titles at that time either, you know, but it was right. just kind of where the story is going and everything. But, Overall, you know what? Four minutes. Hey, go go beat the crap out of Joe Gomez and the <laughs> Renegade. Uh-huh. All right, we got it. And then I was also just thinking about like, God, and just two years before the Renegade ran over Arn Anderson for the Television Championship. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And and it's just like any any like any time afterwards when you see him, you're like, what on earth did they think they had in him? Other than someone that kind of looks like the ultimate warrior if the ultimate warrior didn't work out very much yeah he was looking really rough in this match i didn't even know it was him until they said the renegade <laughs> right we go to commercial and tony tells us that next will be the nwo's masahiro chono in action when we return though before that we get lee marshall's road report and he is in des moines iowa uh actually in the nearby suburb of clear lake iowa at the Clash of the Champions party hosted by Lynn Scribbins. Now, he was so specific about that name uh-huh. and the suburb that he was in that I Googled Lynn Scribbins just to see, like, because sometimes it's an inside joke. He's using the real name of a wrestler or, like, a, a legend who's long since retired or dead. Mm-hmm. But when I Googled that name, what I found was that Lynn Scribbins is a real person who lives in Clear Lake, Iowa. Huh. She just seems to be a 60-year-old lady. <laughs> She's married to a dentist. Uh, she does not seem to be a wrestling fan, as far as I could tell. And a Facebook message that I sent to her went understandably ignored. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe I could find out from her why Lee Marshall mentioned her on the show. I thought it might be a fun anecdote, but no. she, she did not get back to me. <laughs> 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 There has to be so it has to be his cousin or something. I I can't figure out a reason why he would have picked a specific person like that. Right. But anyway, well, I guess we'll never know. Because he's uh, usually at like a school or something, right? Yeah, or like a when he was in 
New Orleans, like he said, he was at um, uh, a gumbo restaurant and he gave a name for it. And if you look up the name, it was actually like uh, the Strangler ed lewis's like real name or something like that like that like he <laughs> likes to make little inside jokes that you kind of have to like uh-huh. be in the know or or look up or something to get what he's talking about but this just seems to be a, a nice pleasant lady from the middle of nowhere iowa <laughs> cool cool Classic. marshall name checks other iowa natives including john wayne and major league baseball hall of famer bob feller then says that Bobby Heenan, I didn't quite understand his finish here this week. He, he, of course, always has to get in his lame weasel joke. Mm-hmm. But he says something about how Heenan's favorite song is the national anthem performed by Hootie and the Blow Weasels. Yeah. Now, Hootie and the Blowfish are from South Carolina, not Iowa. So I guess he couldn't think of a third Iowa reference or something. Right. Uh, Bobby, under the guise of being disgusted by the joke, calls them Hootie and the Weasel Blowers. <laughs> Nice recovery. The NWO NW- <laughs> <laughs> B team music plays. So sorry, Chono, but your three G1 tournament wins aren't enough to get you the real NWO music. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> oh. Chono comes to the ring to face Das Wunderkind, Alex Wright. And so here to call this one is our Alex Wright specialist, Dave Amantorp. The, and this is going to be just a kind of a summation of the match. I, yeah. I wanted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the point I want to make at the beginning is uh, I want this match to be a reminder of something that wrestling companies should have realized for a long time is that bad officiating is not a good gimmick. It's not even, yes. it's not even a good way to get heel heat it is seriously like the, the, the old school, like X-Pac fuck off with this bullshit heat. Uh, so the fans, during this match are booing Alex Wright and have complete indifference to Masahiro Chono. Um, but they are passionately booing the crooked officiating. Like they're unhappy with it. I don't get the reactions that these guys are getting other than the idea that smart fans, uh, if like the smart contingency has decided that they're going to be pro NWO, but are just not pro NWO enough to cheer for Masahiro Chono. Just like they just don't want to boo him. <laughs> yeah. But I like but they're booing Alex Wright when he does anything, and I'm just like I I'm I have no idea why. I don't get it. And he's so he's working so hard in this match. Alex Wright is yes. working his butt off. You know, and even Chono, like it, it, Chono doesn't need to go as hard, you know. Um but yeah, like that's what I have in my notes is like the match is, is a great match. Um Alex Wright's working so hard. Chono's working so hard, but the crowd is split because it's the NWO and they love the NWO, but this bad officiating is just such a horror. It's ruining the match. Yeah. It's a weird thing where they're like, this is the cool faction. I want to, I want to, I want to like brand myself with my NWO shirt Uh and think I'm one of the cool guys like Hall and Nash, but there's this aspect of the NWO. We've talked about this a lot on the show where yeah, Hall and Nash are cool and they do cool shit. But then you also have to be like, well, here I am wearing the same shirt as Big Bubba and Nick Patrick in his backwards baseball cap. Right. You know, like I'm throwing myself in with them as well. Uh And it creates a weird thing for the crowd where they don't always, I think, know how to react to these. And and I I really like what you were saying, Levi, that Chono and Alex Wright are working their asses off here, but 
they're handicapped by the fact that the storyline of this match is all about what Nick Patrick is doing. Mm-hmm. And then, and now this is like uh, our our second or third exposure to Masahiro Chono in WCW, and this is like probably our longest exposure to him. And I'm still, I, I still don't entirely understand um, the success of Chono because. I, I I do think that he is working very hard, but he comes off as very unathletic, um, and just kind of awkward in the ring. Yeah, I don't know about unathletic, but I do agree with awkward. It seems like someone who's not. It's like he he just became as tall as he is like last week, and he's still figuring it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know if he if he got hurt or something, you know. But yeah, that was the definite thing. It was like this is not the Chono of the early nineties, you know, even when he was in WCW the first time, you know, he was just way more athletic and way more limber. And here he's just like walking like, um, like Zeus. Yeah. 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 (laughs) He is. He does move like Zeus. That's a perfect comparison. I really hope I don't get crucified for, you know, comparing Masahiro Chono to Zeus. Um, because Masahiro Chono is a way better wrestler, but that was like, he was so rigid with all of his movements, you know, and he could still wrestle, but I, I think there must've been some kind of back injury or something. Also by this point, he is a like 12 or 13 years into his career. And, and I know that back in the day that in new Japan, that's like new Japan years in wrestling are considerably longer than regular wrestling years, just of how <laughs> much they get beat. So he could just be like, he, he looks. I think it says here he probably was like thirty five at this point, so he could just be like had a, a lot of mileage on him by this point, and maybe just doesn't move quite as well as he used to. So, I know Tim, you've mentioned it before that like in order to give him like a good 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 idea of Chono is to watch some of his stuff in New Japan and try not to judge him based on the stuff we've seen in WCW so far. But, um, yeah, I actually solicited, uh, I put a tweet out saying, like, send me good Shono matches because I feel like I'm not getting the proper respect for the guy that I should. Right. And so people, I've not watched them, but people did send me a bunch of matches. Um, so at the time uh, they sent him, I was watching uh, that match I sent you, uh, Marafuji versus Kenta oh, sure. from 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was a little busy at the time, but I am going to watch. I'm going to try to watch a bunch of Chono matches this weekend uh, just so I, I I can feel like I'm really understanding, you know, that I, I just feel like I don't get Chono right now, but yeah. I, I want to. That's kind that of that's what I was trying to the impression I was trying to give. It was not like. I don't feel like what I've seen so far is a fair uh, way of assessing him. And I want, mm-hmm. I want to see what he was like in his prime in new Japan and not, not someone that is like, it's kind of like if you're trying to judge Nakamura nowadays in WWE. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not a fair, it's just not a fair way of looking at them because they're kind of towards like they're, they're past like their prime in the ring and, and, and maybe, who knows what sort of effort they're capable of at that point. But well, it is, it is. I do want to point out though, that he wins the G one two more times and they're almost like 10 years after this. Uh, he wins, oh, I think 2006 yeah. and seven. Okay. So it could be like Levi was saying, it could be that there's an injury and maybe he, you know, eventually works through it or takes some time <laughs> off or something, but or he just, he, he's got several more G1 victories in his future. Or he just Frankensteins his way through like two more G1s. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm sure that last one, you man, I'm sure it was just an experience and a half to see him move, you know? Yeah. He wrestled because he, he did like a lot of guys do where he kind of wrestled for a long time and had that sort of legend status in New Japan where you, you're kind of on the undercard, but you still have, you know, some fun matches occasionally. And he wrestled all the way, I think, to like 2012. 2014 is what I'm reading here. Oh, wow. That's even, yeah, wow. His last match on record, uh, April 13th, 2014. Yeah, you know, um, I kind of was that way. You know, I always remember Chono from those early 90s WCW, and I'd seen a couple G1s. And then this was the Chono that I really knew was this later day one. And, mm-hmm. you know, I knew he kind of brought NWO Japan back and kind of really brought a whole new era of that back there, kind of leading it almost, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, he brought like a whole, it was kind of like his Hogan turn, I think, was that he was like one of those Muda and um, Chono and a couple of the others were like the real strongholds of New Japan at that time. And then when he came out and did the whole turn and everything, he brought all that. And then even Muda started doing some NWO stuff over there. It was like NWO itself was such a revolutionary thing, you know, that. Uh, I think it probably inspired him to maybe try to get back into maybe a shape as to where before this happened, maybe he thought differently. Mm -hmm. So actually speaking about this matchup here, uh, the biggest pop of the match is when uh, Alex Wright just got fed up with Nick Patrick's officiating and he just like kicked him in the gut. Um, (laughs) Everyone, yeah, it gets a huge pop and it's kind of like, um, you know things are going wrong that if you can get Alex Wright that worked up because he is about as like Boy Scout as you can get in WCW <laughs> at this time. Yeah. But um, so the finish here is basically after about four and a half minutes of action. Um, there's a, another case where Wright has a pinfall attempt and he can't secure it, so he goes up to the top uh, for a cross body block and misses, and Chono hits a running boot uh, for the pinfall victory. Uh, like I said, it's about four and a half minutes of action, and it's pretty much oriented towards the bad officiating, and that's why I was just like, I, I, I cannot, I can't enjoy a match that is about the officiating like that. It's just, mm-hmm. I, I just can't. I can't do it. It's definitely tough. It didn't add anything, and poor Alex Wright, you know, taking all those big bumps and everything when, mm-hmm. you know, the crowd was just not even paying attention. I mean. Patrick got more heat than Chono, you know, um, Chono didn't get any, any, anything. So he probably just doled out and not, not a strong segment in my, when it had such a potential on paper, you know? And I was, it was funny because like during the match, I was like, I feel like there might be maybe someone that is a little bit more capable of like playing off of Chono that might make it a bit more entertaining. Um, and my first thought was Chris Jericho, and that's funny because that's who Chono's facing at sold out is Chris Jericho. Um, so now, and now I'm like, oh, okay, I feel like that's going to be another good opportunity to get a better idea of what Chono is because I feel like Jericho is going to be a good, a good wrestler to play off of him. That's going to kind of understand that. So um, yeah, I mean, this was essentially uh, a way to build up uh, Chono for his match with Jericho which is uh, which would be news to the announcers because they never bring it up during the match. During the commercials, Public Enemy entices us to buy a Lex Luger T-shirt for only twenty-two dollars. 
And after that, we open on Eddie slingshotting himself into the ring where Guerrero is to face the already present Scott Norton with Nick Patrick once again on the call. Tony tells us that this building used to be the home of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's Milwaukee Bucks, and here to call all the action is our own master of the skyhook, Dave Amontorp. And <sighs> and Dave, before you get into it, uh-huh. had I known your opinion, your your extreme negative opinion on the heel ref, I would not have given you two heel ref matches that take place <laughs> in a row. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, well, this one, I feel like it plays off a little bit better just because Guerrero and Norton are focused on each other a lot more. Sure. And I, I think that the other match just kind of was like when Wright and Chono didn't really know what to do next. They just kind of went back to Patrick. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So this match is, is pretty short, but I really enjoyed this match. Um, Scott Norton has been yeah. in WCW since the start of Monday Nitro, but I, I feel like this is the best showcase he's had so far. And this, which is interesting because it's a loss, but he look he looks great in this, and I think what kind of separates him from other like big men wrestlers is a lot of time like big men wrestlers do they do no sell like for smaller wrestlers, but then they never I feel like a lot of bigger wrestlers never quite learn how to do selling when they're supposed to sell, whereas Norton mm-hmm. you can tell no sells certain things, but when it is time for him to get beaten up he can sell properly. Like I, th- I felt like Norton made Eddie Guerrero look really, really good too. When like Guerrero would capitalize on kick, getting his legs out from underneath him, or trying to slingshot his his way around. Like these two guys, you would not have guessed it, but they work really, really well together. Yeah, I uh, thought that I thought Eddie meshed really well with um, Scott Norton right here. You know, I thought it was kind of funny when they were diddling around at the beginning and um nick patrick was messing around with norton and eddie didn't like he didn't like being made a fool you know so he was in the corner and he didn't he didn't like yeah sorry eddie was in the corner and he didn't like looking stupid you know so he went around and he pinched uh nick patrick's butt and stuff like that (laughs) just like totally on the on the fly you know and i guarantee they didn't call that or anything so it's just kind of like the natural feeling that Eddie had being in that environment that was obviously, again, such a good environment to play off of. This match reminds me of the fact that I did watch this Clash of the Champions live when it happened um, because a spot that I always remembered is the Scott Norton doing the suplex on Eddie where he just simply lets him drop. Um, it mm-hmm. looks it looks brutal. It looks like Norton just ass- like asserting himself as just like, I'm way fucking bigger and more powerful than you. And I can just be a, I'm just disregarding my opponent because he is just a tiny man sort of thing. Sort yeah. It's really putting over his strength right here. Yeah. And I, and I, when I was trying to think about it, I was like, I, I wonder if that spot looks really rough now, but no, it's like if they execute it really, really well in which it, it looks like careless, but it's not. Yeah. If uh, you take care of them, it's a really nice thing. But if you're not, it's not <laughs> right, and in this this the ending of this match is fantastic because I feel like it makes Norton Guerrero and Diamond Dallas Page all look great. So the ending yep. the ending here is um, there's interference by Diamond Dallas Page who comes out through the crowd. Um, he hits a diamond cutter um, on Norton while the referee is preoccupied with Guerrero. Um, this. This is one of the biggest pops of the night is the diamond cutter on Norton. 
Um, and then I like the fact that Norton is just like out of it. So he's on his stomach and Guerrero just simply hits a frog splash on his back and then rolls him over. And then, yeah, then there's like the reluctant, uh, the pinfall thing, which is, yeah, I, yeah, it's like the comeuppance on Nick Patrick is a nice touch, but I wish that wasn't a thing that had to happen. (laughs) (laughs) I do always like he, Nick Patrick always has great facial expressions and yeah. like the anguish on his face while he counted the three count. And then afterward where he was just devastated that he had done that. Uh-huh. I thought that was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot to get there, you know, but once he finally was pinned down there and everything and, you know, and that's what kind of, uh, I was thinking about earlier was that, you know, you have the bad ref and everything. He could just not count and throw the match out which I'm glad they didn't do. And I'm glad they gave Eddie Guerrero the win because it was necessary at the time and they could afford it. You know, mm-hmm. he's gotten all this heat from being this bad ref, but Eddie overcame everything. And diamond Dallas came through like a snake and hit the, you know, the diamond cutter and snaked his way back. And then he hits the frog splash. So he's like laying there and the crowd's so excited and he's got this wimpy little face and he's one too and he's like oh i really i really don't i really and then he did it yeah. it was like i was a good feeling overall and a, a really nice placement on the uh on the show for that it's good too to show that eddie can overcome the long odds of facing the nwo on, on their own terms because he is headed into that ladder match on saturday and one imagines in a ladder match specifically there's going to be a lot of shenanigans uh-huh so uh you know it's it's a nice way of like showing that there might be still a glimmer of hope that he can he can win that match against six. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, considering if you look on a paper, Scott versus Eddie Guerrero, you're kind of like, I don't know how this is going to turn out between those two, but I thought this match, I, again, I thought this match was really outstanding in the fact that everyone involved, um, benefited from it. Like I think mm-hmm. I, Scott Norton in a loss looked like a powerful dominating force in which, uh, you know, it's like you still, it's kind of protected because of the Diamond Dallas Page interference. Uh, but then Guerrero still gets to hit his finisher and get the victory. So he looks great. And now Diamond Dallas Page doing the NWO sneak attacking. And he picks like the perfect moment to do it where no other NWO member was involved. But it's still like he's made his presence known and now he's gone. Uh, and just like those 30 seconds that he was involved on the show... Uh, did more for his character than like a lot of his regular matches have done. It was kind of cool too, because he was gone from nitro two weeks ago. He hit that diamond cutter on hall with the NWO shirt and everything. That was like such a cool moment. I was almost, it was almost smart to keep him off nitro the next week to like build anticipation to wanting him to do stuff. And now using him so sparingly uh, was also a really cool idea. So, like, I really, really enjoy what they're doing with DDP right now. Yeah, they had him at the right point. You know, I'm a big uh, – whenever I watch shows, I try to watch, you know, for the whole the whole episodic factor of it, you know. And it was right at this point. It's kind of what I said was the cruiserweight match started, and then you had it, like, not real filler, but, you know, just kind of, like, cold matches. And then you have something here with some more story based off it again. And, you know, I, I, I imagine if I was in the crowd, I'm like – Oh man, you know, Nick Patrick, you said, Oh my gosh, it's DDP. Mm-hmm. Boom, he hits it, you know, and just the the whole fanfare of everything. It um it was just a real awesome way to use DDP. And the way he hits it, 
and just has the stone cold face, you know, and the whole time he's looking as he leaves and just in and out real, real good. After that, we get a promo from the giant. You know, it's funny, Hogan. I bet right now you're sitting at home. You're sitting there with your kids. You're sitting there with your family. You're talking to those other monkeys on the phone because you're trying to count how many lives you've got left. You four-legged feline, do the math. You're thinking to yourself, if I used a life here, a life there, I barely got away from the giant last nitro. And luckily, all the security held me back. The security held me back. It took a mountain of them. It sold out. Nothing is going to hold me back, Hogan. You said you were my friend. You gave me the rides in the limos. I rode with you in the Learjet. The whole time, I wasn't your friend. I was the person that you were afraid of most. That's why you recruited me. That's why you paid me. And that's why you befriended me. Hogan, it doesn't work anymore. I have smartened up, and I have seen the light. You know, when I think about your light, Hogan, and I think about your future in professional wrestling after sold out, you know when I think about it? I think it's real dim. It kind of reminds me of a match that struck, it provides a purpose. Maybe it gives a little warmth, maybe a little inspiration. Or maybe it just gets blown out. Sold out, you're getting blown out. The giant stands in front of a wall of horizontal pink stripes. It's the most, it looks like he's on a Glamour Shots set somewhere. Yeah, uh-huh. he's, he, he's hanging out down in Fashion <laughs> District in L.A. You can tell because that shoulder is not, that um, one of the shoulder buttons isn't clipped and it drives me freaking insane, the whole promo. <laughs> Giant says that Hogan must be trying to figure out how many lives he has left, then repeats his insult from a couple weeks ago, calling Hogan a four-legged feline. Giant says that security held him back on Nitro, but it sold out nothing will hold him back. He claims Hogan duped him into believing that they were friends because the Giant is the one person that Hogan was afraid of most. Giant says that he has smartened up and Hogan's tricks won't work anymore, uh, I wonder if the thing that tipped him off was when Hogan and his cronies beat the shit out of him on live television three weeks ago. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> beat the shit out of me on TV once. Shame on you. <laughs> uh, Giant says that Hogan's life and career after sold out are looking dim as a match that may have offered a little light in the darkness or may have just been blown out. To hammer home his metaphor, the Giant lights and blows out a match and we go to break. Uh, I thought the match thing was a little silly and the metaphor somewhat dubious, but I thought, like, Giant's delivery was good. You know, he tends to bellow all of his promos with this big, fake, deep, I'm of the Giant voice. When he kind of mellows out and just cuts a more cerebral promo, I-, I think the Giant's promo is pretty good for where he's at in his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, Levi, what did you think of the promo? Yeah, no, I thought the same thing. I thought he wasn't screaming, you know, he, he had a sense of... Um of where he was, you know, in a sense of what he wanted to say rather than just screaming at the top of his lungs, anything he could. Uh, the match thing was kind of cornball, I thought. Um, and just the zooms on this were kind of taking me in and out of it. You know, it was like in and out and left and right. And just the, the web or the camera was really uh, panning in and out a lot to kind of 
um, the promo, I felt that he was kind of trying to give, you know, he was trying to be real serious and make people think whether, you know, he was real 100% WCW or if he was maybe had some small inkling that he was going to go to NWO, but he was still trying to get Hogan, you know? Mm-hmm. Dave, how'd you like the promo from the giant here? Well, uh, yeah, I thought it was all right. I mean, um, the giant kind of has that, that sort of same thing like Chris Benoit where he'll, it's like two steps forward, one step back on any given week. I thought it was a pretty serviceable. It wasn't really noteworthy or anything like that other than like it makes him like if he gets like promos to hype up the match, it makes him look like a more legitimate uh, contender um, other than him just like showing up at sold out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sold out's going to, I, I keep saying this because again, sold out as a pay-per-view I've never seen before. I'm just really interested in like how like the, the home field bias of the new world order is going to really play out. Like, because none of these, none of the wrestlers ever mentioned the fact that it's a NWO pay-per-view that they're going into. Like he's facing Hogan, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't, they don't ever mention like he's facing Hogan on Hogan's turf in which we Mm -hmm. don't even really know if the rules are going to be different or, (laughs) or if it's going to be like, Oh, NWO members are just going to be surrounding the ring or anything. We don't really have an idea as far as what this pay-per-view is supposed to look like yet. So I, maybe that's just kind of what the, the appeal is like the, you you don't know what's going to be what you're going to see for it. Like maybe the mystery is what they're trying to sell. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, but like, yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty serviceable promo. Tony Schiavone announces the winners of the PlayStation tournament of champions. Uh, something that was mentioned on a nitro way back in November, uh, he seriously announces all 10 winners and their hometown. Uh-huh. It just goes on and on. I remember that being kind of a big deal because the PlayStation store that they ran this out of in San Francisco mm-hmm. was out of this place called the Metreon. And it was kind of like a big um, electronic, you know, hubbub in mm-hmm. San Francisco around that time. It was kind of a big deal. Um and I remember when they opened the PlayStation store and they had this and it was kind of all over the place. So um, maybe that makes the, it makes sense why he actually took the time to name everybody because maybe like CNN or the tournament itself, you know, paid the time for the, for sure. the announcement. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, after he said like the very first name, like Dusty Rhodes had like a big reaction, like, all right, cool. And then he got, then he got quiet once he realized that the other nine names were going to be named. <laughs> He's like, oh, oh, that's what we're doing. Okay, I can wait. <laughs> After that, the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan, along with Jimmy Hart, make their way to the ring. And then Chris Benoit, accompanied by Woman. Uh, it never really occurred to me until now, even though we're in the, the thick of it, uh, the middle of this blood feud, and we've seen these crazy, you know, matches they've had going all the way back to, to July or August of last year with the Great American Bash. Uh, like, it's so weird that Jimmy Hart is a part of this, mm-hmm. that it's these two men fighting over the fact that one is stealing the other's wife and they hate each other. And, you know, this is real. We're working the boys and all this. And yet, like, Kevin Sullivan comes to the ring with this tiny cartoon man screaming at him through an airbrushed megaphone. And he's vibrant, <laughs> and his colors are light. He's very vibrant this show. It's such a... He's, he's like, really the odd fit in this, <laughs> in this feud. And it never really uh, hit me until right now. Like, why not have Jimmy Hart just deal with the other members of the Dungeon of Doom, and he could just leave Sullivan alone for now? It's very weird. There, there's no indication that this whole, like, domestic 
dispute thing with Kevin Sullivan hasn't affected Jimmy Hart one iota. He has he's no different. <laughs> uh, he's very yeah he is very very detached from the whole thing and and he doesn't really add anything to it besides like occasionally like the megaphone is going to be used as a weapon. But as mm-hmm. we've learned in wrestling, the ring is full of weapons underneath anyway, so you don't really need him right. to show up with that. So. Um, yeah, I I agree. It is kind of like it is kind of a goofy thing. It's a it's a very very, if you don't watch or understand pro wrestling, it's gonna be very unusual. Like, what is that thing that's his <laughs> that's that's with him? Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from there, if you're a listener to this show, you could probably just tell yourself the story of this match because it is the exact same. As every the other three times we've seen Benoit and Sullivan face off, mm. uh, they immediately brawl up the steps. Uh, like this time, they don't even get in the ring. Benoit does, and Sullivan's like, "No, get out here!" They punch, punch, punch. They head up the steps. If you look, you'll notice that Bobby Eaton is following them around, acting as an enforcer, just kind of like threatening to beat the shit out of any fans who get too close. Yeah. Uh, and this is because of something that we didn't notice on Nitro, Dave, until uh, I was I was reading about why Bobby Eaton was out there. Uh, on Nitro, there was a fan who full-on body-checked Kevin Sullivan while he was on the steps. Oh, Just, wow. like, throws himself into him and tackles him. So this time they're like, fuck it, put Bobby Eaton out there. No one's going to no fuck with him that much. Yeah, um, and I, I don't – I think there was a chance I would have missed him being out there if he hadn't pointed it out like, before the match began. But I kept, mm-hmm. I kept like anytime he's on screen, I was watching him, and he was like, he he had this look where it's like I'm not even beginning to be ready to be fucked with tonight, you know? No, dude, he was ready to go <laughs> on those, and I think that's probably why he was he was out there. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, you need me to you need me to beat up some fans? <laughs> Fuck yeah, I'll go out there. Hold on, we'll put some yeah. sweatpants on. Yeah, he had he had the look where it's like the people backstage knew like there's probably like two or three guys where they're like put him out there that will stop the shit mm-hmm. right away and i ming was probably gonna be too obvious so yeah meng everyone would recognize meng but you might be able to get bobby eaton out there in street clothes and most people aren't even gonna notice right probably. yeah because everyone has the same haircut as he did at that time <laughs> funny because you have the commentary team putting over oh well we see uh head of security doug dillinger over there you know he's going over <laughs> but it's really bobby eaton is the one that's that's running shout yeah uh, of course, they go immediately into the men's room. Sullivan beats Benoit with a paper towel dispenser that has been knocked off the wall. Benoit throws a trash can that mostly misses Sullivan and totally wipes out Jimmy Hart. Dusty hits him with the, oh, I got Jimmy Hart with the trash can. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> also, the referee has his foot stuck in the urinal because of that. <laughs> yeah, Benoit shoves Randy Anderson to the ground. Like you said, Anderson, like... I don't know if he's doing it a little bit because he knows that it's funny, but he keeps his foot in the urinal for like a minute and a half. It's yeah. so long. Uh, Sullivan goes for a pin on the bathroom floor, and Shivani goes, that's the first kick out we've ever seen from a bathroom. Ew. Dusty and Tony take some time out. From the middle of this insane ma- they're they're selling this like two guys are trying to murder each other. But then they take a moment uh, of just laughing while they try to remember the 1958 Andy Griffith comedy, No Time for Sergeants, <laughs> because it apparently also has a memorable scene with urinals. I- I've never seen the movie, so I can't say, but Dusty's just like, 
whenever I see a urinal, I think about that movie with, uh, what's the one with Andy Griffin? And Tony's like, no time for sergeants. I love that movie. <laughs> it's like, you guys, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Pay attention. There's a time and place for everything, and it's not <laughs> live on air during your blood feud Falls Count Anywhere match. Not with all that plunder flying all over the bathrooms. <laughs> Benoit gets thrown headfirst into the metal panel that covers the radiator. Uh, they then head back to the arena steps. Much smoother than Nitro last night. This time, security has has got a decent tunnel for them to get back to the steps without, you know, woman is not there beating anyone with her high heels again. Mm-hmm. Also, woman this time stays at ringside because I think last time got a little too real for for her. Yes. So I she she stays where it's safe down by the ring. And the cameraman still can't stay behind. They have that little hole for a second when. Benoit and uh, and everyone gets through, but the camera guy still gets shut off, so they have to shoot to a different camera. Yep. Yeah, and maybe because of that, they pretty much miss uh, Sullivan pushing Benoit headfirst down the steps. I mean, you do see it, but but really, like, the, the bump of falling and crashing down those steps is, is basically lost. It's not on camera. And that's really too bad, because I don't think a guy should ever be throwing himself down the steps. Like, that's that's a bump too far for my me. Yep. But if you're going to do it, like, at least it should be something that's on camera. I just, it, it feels like pretty, not disrespectful, because I'm sure they would have got it if they could. Mm-hmm. But it just was like, man, Benoit, like, you shouldn't be doing stuff like that because they're not even showing it on screen. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be pissed if they got, if they didn't catch my giant dive <laughs> downstairs. Back in the ring, Sullivan sets up Benoit on the tree of woe and hits his running knee. He hits his double stomp finisher, but Benoit kicks out. At this point, Jimmy Hart hops on the apron to give Sullivan the megaphone, and what is supposed to happen is Woman will hop up on the opposite side of the ring with a chair and hit Sullivan, and that is what happens, but it takes her a while to find the chair under the ring, Mm -hmm. so Sullivan and Hart and Randy Anderson have to very unconvincingly grapple over the megaphone. (laughs) They're fighting over the megaphone for what seems like just ages, and the entire time... The camera is such that you can see Sullivan's face, and they actually show this on the replay, so you see it in slow-mo. And he is just, he knows that he's going to get hit in the back of the head with a chair, and he doesn't know exactly when it's going to happen. And you just see him trying to, like, get himself up for it, and he's just breathing heavy, and his eyes are bugging out. And he's just like, (laughs) why haven't I been hit by this chair yet? When is the chair coming? Oh my god, I know that I'm going to get hit with a chair. He's, it's like, it's really uncomfortable to see him waiting for it to happen. Uh, she finally does hit him, but it's one of those wooden chairs, which doesn't break. They're, they normally just shatter when the guys do it, but woman just doesn't have the arm strength. And I have to think it not breaking would make it hurt a lot worse than if it had just shattered on his head. I thought she took care of him pretty well with that shot. It was just, just hard enough for her to give, but just not hard enough to make one of those chairs hurt. That, that could be, yeah, maybe it didn't break cause she was being more gentle with it. Uh, Sullivan goes down, though, and Benoit gets the pinfall victory. After the match, Jimmy Hart runs around the ring freaking out, but Benoit grabs another chair from under the ring, and uh, he, he paced Sullivan with it. He does not hold back. No. Yeah, I put another tagline here. Um, Zandig Jesus gif. <laughs> Benoit poses and heads out with woman as Jimmy Hart checks to see if Kevin Sullivan is still alive, and after that, we go to replays and then commercial. Those those replays reminded me how much I would hate to wrestle on that bathroom floor. Oh God, yeah. Like oh, that was the worst part. Is just thinking on, like, 
so happy they must have had showers back there. But, you know, like a lot, I've seen a lot of independent guys do a lot of really dumb stuff and then not be able to shower after. Yeah, it's, it's just, I mean, especially when Benoit is on his back getting pinned and they are just, that's, that's right by the urinals. It's not even like over mm-hmm. by the sinks or something. There's, there's pee there. There's pee on that ground. Oh, there definitely sure. be pee on that ground. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Uh, so I feel like for me, this is the fourth time I've seen this exact match and it's not like, it's the kind of thing that it, I'm just getting desensitized to it and maybe a little bored of it. Uh, way back when they did it at great American bash, I believe if I remember right, that I said it was great and I really enjoyed it. Now I'm just like, I know exactly what all the beats are going to be. They don't really change it up at all. Other than the pin in the bathroom. There's not anything here that was really all that new. Uh, so for me, the, the match was just so-so. Like, it was just a, a rehash of what we've already what we've already seen. There was no escalation there. Uh, Dave, I imagine your feelings are kind of the same? Yeah, well, because we talked about it on Monday Nitro, which is in, in this timeline, it's the day before, in which they do uh, what they call, like, a preview match, um, in which they go into the bathroom. And there's the fall down the stairs and a chair or like the ring bell was used as a finish for that. Um, but this one, in comparison to the previous night and Great American Bash, it's starting to feel like it's like a satire a bit at this point in which um, especially the announcers treated like all the time in the bathroom as like a joke, pretty much. Um, and yeah, there's just there's nothing new from this um, other than it was a woman that had like direct interference to cause the victory, which to me would kind of indicate it's like, that's the finality of this feud because, because like they were saying, the announcers were saying that like woman's now officially a hundred percent made her decision, like made it chosen her side and it's Chris Benoit. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think, I think uh, Tony Giovanni made the threat that the feud's not over yet. Um, in which I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I'm done with this. You know, you almost, you feel like they're, these guys are done with it too, because the, you don't, there's no sense of like doing anything new. It's kind of going through the, the, the paces of, uh, okay, we go into the bathroom, we throw each other into the walls and stuff, something with the, the bathroom door. Then you go down the steps head first. It's like all the stuff they've already done before. And this it's, it doesn't feel like it. They're really creating anything that's a a very compelling match, really. So I, mm-hmm. I'm I am I am pretty I'm pretty done with it. So Levi, this you know for you you haven't you I assume you didn't just watch Nitro like we did, and and the Great American Bash is probably not fresh in your mind. Uh, so I did actually wh- I did browse the Nitro the night before. Oh okay. Uh, so I was fairly I did have some knowledge of that, but yeah. Most things before, it's kind of sporadic. But So what did you think? Did the match come across better to you than maybe it did for us because it was it was at least a little more novel? Than the, on, my, on Nitro the night before or just well, yeah, the ones just, in general? Oh, the one here. Like, we're set, you know, for us, this match was just something that we've, over the course of the last year, we've seen four times now. For you having, you know, come in a little fresher, did it come off better or I guess just what did you think of the match? Yeah, no, I get what you mean. Um, well, you know, I, I remember the matches. I didn't exactly remember that they had 
like four of them per se. I thought mm. maybe one or two. So, you know, I was, I remember there was like a swirly in one, right? Where one of them gets their head dunked in like a toilet. They get close, but we have not seen a full on like wet hair swirly as of okay, yet. Okay, so. Maybe so there's might, more to come. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah, going to say, that might be spoiler alert, because yeah. I, I remember that bump pretty vividly mm. um, from watching it back when, you know? Mm. And uh, so I was really expecting that a lot of the time, and when I didn't get it, I was just like, oh, maybe they kind of play off this a few times. I thought that they stayed in the bathroom for quite a long time, but then I, I realized on the other end, like, well, man, there's a bunch of fans out there, and they couldn't, like, go to the snack shack, and because the fans are rabid, you know, and they didn't have security to the full extent, you know. Um, so that explains probably why they stayed in the bathroom a little bit longer, because they didn't want to actually go backstage and stuff either. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the 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 heat was there between them. And I remember this being a pretty crucial part of the, um, the feud. Uh, but now that it's coming in, that it's, you know, the fourth or fifth and probably going to continue... Uh, kind of makes it, yeah, a little duller, you know, that they just relied on just the chaotic brawl of Benoit and the Taskmaster, you know. And you're mentioning like the whole swirly thing. Um, there around this time, or at least like the previous uh, fall, there is a fight, uh, like a backstage fight between Steve Austin and Brian Pillman, in which Steve Austin gives Brian Pillman a swirly. So I don't know maybe if that was maybe that's what you're thinking of about the swirly thing because I don't think that happens uh, with these two. Uh, you could you could be right. I thought it was between Chris Benoit and Taskmaster specifically, mm-hmm. uh, but you know maybe I'm having the uh, what do they call that the Mandela effect? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that could be happening, but <laughs> I, I could have sworn that uh, I think it was even Benoit. But yeah, you know, uh, I. Th- this was heavy for the time you know it was even still kind of this is pre-attitude era so mm-hmm. you still didn't get a while a lot of wild brawls like this mm-hmm. yeah um, but i think i think just the wrestler mind overtook a lot of it because i was just thinking a lot of time like oh god no i would never want to wrestle on that like i'd never <laughs> want to take a pit so close to the urinal or all, all that Mm-hmm. Like I would be the like immediately in the shower and probably burn my gear, <laughs> especially because I wrestle in trunks, you know, like Kevin mm. Kevin Sullivan. So it's like it's all it's all meat on that. Floor. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Upon return from break, O Canada plays the amazing French Canadians and Colonel Robert Parker head to the ring. They do their usual singing bit before being cut off by Steinerized. Uh, And this is a little bit of a tune-up match for the Steiners, like I said earlier, because Scott hasn't wrestled since September, and they have the big uh, tag team championship match this Saturday at Sold Out. Uh, It was originally reported that his injury was a hip injury, uh, but in storyline it's his back, and I think that it probably actually is his back. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of both. Um, But if you notice on his gear, there's like a weight belt supporting his back that's kind of built into his gear now. Mm -hmm. So I I do think, you know, he's coming back and Steam must still have a little bit of back pain based on the fact that he's wearing that new weight belt that uh, we've never seen him wear before. Yeah, I also kind of put it in on my notes that this is the, uh, in quote, last fuck that Scott Steiner gave as a tag wrestler. (laughs) This is definitely entering into the 
dissension of the Steiner brothers. And, um, but this is, I think this is like the time period where it's really starting to become a Cause I remember watching back when going like, why aren't they matching anymore? You know, why or, or mismatching maybe in the, the, mm. the Steiner, you know, but like, mm-hmm. there's no connected there. It's now Rick is really vibrant and wearing all this, you know, crap. And now Scott Steiner's randomly wearing, you know, these tassels on his boot and these black gimmicks, you know, like what's up with that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. I was going to say that, that Scott Steiner looks pretty fucking cool with this, with this like new getup and how, you know, it's a, it's, it's still like a year away, but like foreshadowing maybe like a darker like character for him. And then he's with his brother, Rick, who's dressing the same as he's dressed since like 1988, pretty much like <laughs> they do. Yeah. They, they look very, very different from each other. Like once they remove their matching like jackets, if you're someone that was like watching for the first time, you would get no indication that, that this is like a cohesive tag team. They look completely different from each other now. Yeah, 100%. And it was such a drastic change to the Steiner brother because he still looked like Scott Steiner, but he could have added that belt and everything on, you know, some of new flashies. I don't know. I just thought it was a real interesting take. And that's always been something that stuck with me ever since I was little, too. As the Steiners uh, make their way to the ring, the pyro blows, and behind them on the big screens come the Outsiders. They say that they are watching the Steiners and that they will see them in Cedar Rapids next Saturday unless they decide to head out and finish them off right now. With that, the Outsiders vanish and the Steiners finish their entrance. A low form of life in the sport, the things that he has done. Hey, Steiner brothers! Hey, Steiners, Uh-oh. we're watching you! <laughs> hey, Scotty, welcome back. See how that back works out? See how your back is there, you muscle head. If these Molson Canadians don't take care of you tonight, we'll see you next Saturday, boys! See you sold out there, Steiner brothers. See you in Cedar Rapids, sold out next Saturday! You know what? I might just come down there and finish it myself right now. Have a, have a good match there, fellas. Steiner's won him right now. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna get the Steiner under the Steiner skin. It's got it looking good coming back out here. I liked the idea, um, but it seemed like they didn't really know what to say, so there was like a part where they just kept saying See you in Cedar Rapids. See you in Cedar Rapids. They just like repeated it five or six times. Like, uh-huh. oh crap, we we didn't plan any other bullet points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the bell rings and everyone brawls in the ring before settling down to Rick and Carl Ouellette. Rick levels Olette with a clothesline and barks, and the Canadians regroup on the outside. The Steiners try to chase them, and things head back in the ring where the Canadians take advantage of the Steiners entering the ring second, catching them with a booting. Having briefly got the upper hand, the Canadians wisely conclude that this is a safe time to turn their backs on their opponents and pose to the crowd. The Steiners climb to the top rope and cut off with an elbow from Scott and a crossbody from Rick to take us into the commercial break. When we come back, the Canadians have somehow regained control as they are in the process of double-teaming the dog-faced gremlin. Jacques slams Ouellette on Rick and then baits Scott Steiner in the ring to distract Scott Dickinson, so that PCO can choke Rick in the corner. A scoop slam by Pierre, and the Canadians go for the Quebecer crash, but Rick avoids it and heads to make the tag, but Jacques runs over and hits Scott on the apron. 
The Canadians try more double teaming, but Rick takes them down with a double clothesline that allows him to make the hot tag over to Scott. Scott takes down the Canadians with elbows and a back body drop on PCO. Then he lifts Jacques for a gorilla press and tosses him into Carl. He follows up with a double noggin knocker and then a belly to belly on Ouellette. Jacques comes in with the flag, but Scott ducks it, nails Jacques with a clothesline, and sends him flying from the ring. Rick then sets up Carl on his shoulders and heads to the corner. Scott gets on the top turnbuckle for the Steiner DDT, a tag finisher which I don't recall seeing before, but uh, basically Rick's got a guy on his shoulders, Scott stands on the top ropes and does a DDT as he lets himself like fall backwards off the rope. Uh, all in all, it looked pretty devastating. Like I would not want to be uh, Carl Ouellette taking that move, but you know he's in he's in full control. Steiner's just kind of gently falling backwards, but mm-hmm. I think the end effect is pretty cool looking. Yeah, it looks nasty, but it definitely looked like a safe bump too. The Steiners celebrate. The Outsiders don't throw show up as they had threatened to, and we will see those teams instead lock up in our next episode. Uh, This was, you know, like some of the matches earlier, this was a short, more or less enhancement match. Just a tune-up, making sure, you know, Scott gets, knocks off a little bit of the ring rust before showing up on pay-per-view. So I don't have a ton to say about it. Anything you guys want to add? Amazing French Canadians uh, with Colonel Parker. Um, They're probably some of my favorite tag teams out of it. Even the Quebecers, you know, even back to the Rougeau brothers, um, these guys have always been solid in, in the spots that they were put. So I thought they were really good enhancement talents here. Um, back in this time, I just liked to watch them. But looking back at, I think um, they were solid workers that they could just put in and know that, you know, Jacques Rougeau can go and get good heat on the promo and really give the Steiner brothers a good pedestal to come off of. Mm-hmm. Dave, any thoughts? Um, you slept through this one. No, <laughs> I wouldn't blame you. Um, no, it just it was really it was good, and I think it was important to have the Steiner brothers in the ring and showing that their dominance before their tag title match. Um, like you said, as far as like knocking off the ring rust, but also making them look like that they they are legitimate contenders for the tag titles. Um, amazing French Canadians are they're they're like the perfect kind of guys for them to face. They're like two bigger guys that they can also just throw around the ring, which is like, that's key. That's like peak Steiner is having them just throwing guys all over the place. Um, it's like amazing French Canadians or the faces of fear. Both would have been, uh, like good, good guys for them to face. But, uh, yeah, got the point across, got the feud across and we're ready to move on to sold out. Most times I would say that you wouldn't want to put like low level jobbers up against guys but I think the Steiner brothers make the small rare exception. Yeah. You know, you could uh, feed them Joe Gomez and the renegade and they would <laughs> just eat, eat them up, you know, <laughs> um, but they could also come and have a good match with uh, amazing French Canadians or yeah. Faces of fear, you know? Um, but most times I wouldn't say to put the low level jobbers up against them. We come back from break and it's time for our main event. The NWO music plays and six Kevin Nash and Scott Hall make their way down to the ring. Tony Schiavone gives a special 35th birthday shout-out to longtime WCW fan Brian Hildebrand, which is, of course, the real name of the guy standing in the ring right now, Mark Curtis. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Lex then walks out, and Dusty has a ball pretending to have been lit on fire by Lex's promo. Er, pyro. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Uh, as I said, the birthday boy is in the ring. He calls for the bell, and here to call all the action is our own Dave, the main event, Amatorp. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that Scott Hall and the NWO came out first. Uh, I don't, I can't recall a lot of instances in which, like, well, like key members of the NWO coming out first. Never, never mm-hmm. mind whatever the fuck Big Bubba or Wall Street are doing. But um, no, I just thought it was interesting. I'm not really sure the reason behind it, and I couldn't really think of a reason behind it, so just moved on. Hmm. Um, after some posturing between the two men, we begin with a couple of collar and elbow tie-ups, both of which are won by Luger. Lex gets Hall in a headlock, and Hall counters with a side suplex, but Luger pops up right to his feet. Luger gets in a, cu- a few forearms, but Hall manages a counter with a boot to the face and a second-rope bulldog for a two-count. Scott Hall applies an armbar, but Luger powers out and clotheslines his opponent to the mat. Uh, this match continues to be pretty back and forth until Hall, until Hall pitches Luger out of the ring by the tights, where a six-sneak attack misses, but a Kevin Nash sneak attack does not. A couple of minutes in the ring is all Scott Hall, assisted by shots from Six and Nash when referee Mark Curtis is distracted. Uh, after a fallaway slam only gets Hall a two count, he slaps on an abdominal stretch, and we get the basic abdominal stretch sequences, which is Six helping him, Hall holding the ropes, all that sort of thing. <laughs> you, you know, the things you see what happen during abdominal stretches. <laughs> Mark uh, Curtis is Mark Curtis always does a really good job at working those too. Oh, he's the best. Yeah, I was kind of expecting him to do the uh, the kicking Hall's arm off, but that was a that was that was the one sequence we did not see. We saw everything else, but not that one. <laughs> it's like he was like just about to kick, but then he didn't, and then Hall takes the hip toss for some reason. Yeah, so, yeah, Luger hip-tosses his way out of the move, yet Hall maintains control for another minute of action. Finally, Lex Luger begins the rally, hitting Hall with three straight atomic drops, which Hall sells even better than the previous one, um, <laughs> followed up by a clothesline. Um, after a power slam, Luger calls for the torture rack, which gets Nash and Six into the ring. We now get, like, this ridiculous sort of standard that some referees have where it's like if someone's in the ring it's not as qualification as long as they don't get a move in so if you th- if, <laughs> right. if you thwart them off it's not as qualification yet i think it's dumb i think as soon as someone else comes into the ring it should call for a dq unless you immediately pitch them out but if you like hit them and they're still in like it, it's it's silly it's a very silly thing to do so we basically get a, a few seconds of this sequence where Luger is thwarting off six. He's thwarting off uh, Nash. He's trying to get Luger in the rack. And eventually the numbers game catches up as uh, as six eventually comes off the top and stomps him, um, calling for the disqualification. So this is it's like a 10-minute match. It's a very it's a very peak Lex Luger in which he's just selling and selling and selling mm-hmm. to the point where you can tell that Hall is like he's running out of like he's not I don't think I don't think he's used to like just being purely on offense for so long. So there's points mm-hmm. where he's stopping and he's playing with his hair and he's looking to the crowd, just trying to come up with something else to do because Luger's only selling. I was just thinking he might have uh had a small inkling that he might've had a few drinks that night as well. It could have just been playing his gimmick really <laughs> well 
but he seemed like he just had a little bit more extra stank on some of his his walk <laughs> to the ring, you know? Um, oh, sure. I also, I think that when, uh, during the finish, when Luger uh, goes to call for that first rack, the crowd gets way behind it. You know, he calls for it and they hop up and they really want it, which kind of works that he goes in, you know, he kind of gets like the really, what I put like shitty body slam rack right here, you know, where he kind of gets, um, he kind of gets him up and just kind of dumps him off and then plays with Nash and six, you know, yeah, and then mm-hmm. um, randomly just goes for the 10 count in the corner, like um, super random at the mm-hmm. at the end of it, you know, kind of like all all hell breaks loose and everything. I'm I'm gonna get in the corner and go for ten punches. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't really seem like the smart thing to do when you're facing um three guys all together. Yeah, I don't know what it was. This match it didn't really work for me. I mean, likely the reason I don't like to say it because I like him as a character so much, but likely it's kinda on Lex because I think Scott Hall is, you know, he's more than capable of having good match. I think Lex's good really good matches are fewer and far between. Yeah. Um so this one it it just felt too long, especially when it was it was clear given like where the Lex Luger character is and where the Scott Hall character is. It was pretty obvious that we weren't going to get a real finish. So like it, it we shouldn't have taken 11 minutes to get to a non-finish is is kind of my opinion. And look Lex looks so good right here too. You know that was something that I I saw when he came out was like like he really was like the total package right there, you know, and mm-hmm. even being towards kind of the end of his career, even like uh, as a wrestler. Now I was looking, I was like, man, that's something to work towards, you know, like his hair wasn't all messed up or anything. He still had a good physique. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't really at the end of it. And even just like, I mean, what, this is 97, you know, so, you know, five more years, it would be a different story. But this was still like they had a lot of potential to um plant better seeds you know because i understand what they were trying to do uh you know random chaos brawling into the out you know to the go home and so it makes sense but like uh i think they could have had luger probably get a little bit more of a an actual um push on off of the match or just get beaten you know Mm-hmm. The, the the numbers game comes and they just eat Lex up. It wouldn't hurt him anymore. The NWO beat down Luger with Nash hitting a big boot. The Steiners hit the ring and a huge brawl breaks out. The bell rings and Mark Curtis tries to calm everything down. Uh, his wild gesticulating just sort of looks like dancing. Like at one point he just looks like he's ripping off Disco Inferno's gimmick. Uh-huh. Uh, the brawl goes on forever. It even completely stops at one point, and they announce Luger the winner, the babyface kind of pose in the ring, but then they just start brawling again because there's two or three minutes of airtime left to fill. Uh, according to the Wrestling Observer, this is actually because of some timing and communication issues. The match ended like five minutes too early, pro- probably because it was clear to someone in the back that they were running out of things to do. Yeah. So they were just sitting there with way too much time on their hands, and that brawl had to stretch and stretch and stretch, and it ended up looking like, yeah, it kind of got awkward and a little weird and boring by the end. Uh, so that was weird uh, and kind of colored the end of the show. Uh, but with that last segment out of the way, it, it is time to say what we thought of Clash of the Champions overall. 
Uh, Levi, let's start with you. What did you think of this as a as a complete show? I thought it was really good. You know, um, I, it was a nice um, revisit to the Nitro era of WCW for me. I kind of go in and out, you know, and I really don't watch a lot of, um, you know, late 90s and on wrestling. I, I do to stay current, you know, but a lot of wrestling that I watch is really early 80s or even um you know like early 90s up into 93 or something just to just for my my studying purposes but it was good to kind of go to something that was a little bit more into my childhood Mm -hmm. uh that i remember and um you know it was all it was all there they had a lot of good matches a lot of good talent you know it all made sense onto why it was on the rise in the war you know and on its way to beating wwf because even at this time wwf hasn't found that edge yet you know it was still kind of campy in some ways and this was like real real life and real grit you know um so i thought that was fun um i loved that cruiserweight title match honestly you know if we're gonna go on to like a match of the night or something i would definitely hand that one to the uh cruiserweight title match for sure dave uh what do you think of the show overall uh, I did not care for this show. Um, I felt I, I think that if this was if this was uh primarily a Monday Nitro, I think it would have been fine, but not um really that memorable. But considering Clash of Champions, it's somewhere between like a Nitro and a pay per view, and should be a little bit more uh more of an impressive showcase of WCW. It just was very disappointing. Um, I mean, because you, you really could have, after the Cruiserweight title match, you could have just turned it off and not missed anything of significance, in my opinion. I'll give uh, you credit on that, actually. Sorry if I can interrupt. You're right. It doesn't have the uh, stature that it should of a Clash of Champions, but it, um, it was rather more of a Nitro. I didn't really think of the two mm-hmm. until you mentioned that, but I, I would I would actually agree with that. Yeah, I mean, it felt noteworthy that there was a lot it felt like there was a lot of people that just weren't at the show i think the very ending must was just weird because you just felt like sting was going to show up or sting was savage or something like that and they just don't show up and the giant's not even there um like we mentioned buff bagwell was not there to hype up his match it felt like there was a lot of absences for this show and just in general that not a lot of attention was paid to it by WCW. It was more, I just, I just kind of have the opinion that they're, they're a little bit, they're kind of like done with the whole clash of the champions thing. And are maybe just kind of playing out the last two of their scheduled events before just getting rid of all altogether. But like it's clash of champions and there's one title match, you know, that to me, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, what are we even doing here then? If that's the best you can do, even though like that title match is fantastic. But it is mm-hmm. like there's like ten matches, and you can just skip the other nine, you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean there there wasn't any there wasn't any match where I was like that was really really awful or anything. I mean I think the Harlem Heat one. I mean that was short with uh, mm-hmm. with Gomez and all that. So there wasn't anything where I was like that was an eyesore or anything. And I again I really enjoyed um, the Eddie Guerrero versus Scott Norton thing. But you also that there wasn't anything storyline wise that you were missing if you didn't see that match either. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Overall, 
there was a, an outstanding beginning of it and then just a very forgettable rest of it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there, Dave. Um, I felt like uh, Nitro or, or WCW, I should say, has kind of stumbled a little across the goal line here where we had such a great build going for sold out. And then Nitro was like a little disappointing compared to the few Nitros before it. Mm-hmm. And now this clash was a little disappointing. Uh, and we're really going to have to see what happens with sold out. You know, does that show pay off those things in a satisfying way or not? Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to find out. Um, so, yeah, I, I am looking forward to sold out still. But I will say that Nitro in this show put a little bit of damper on, on my enthusiasm. Uh, certainly... You've got the cruiserweight title match. You've got the six-man tag, and you've got the Guerrero-Norton match. Those were all fun. Um, the only one that I would tell anyone to go out of their way and watch if you've, you've got the WWE Network, you, you still want to check this out, uh, I would say that cruiserweight title match would be the one to queue up and watch, and then you can turn the rest of the show off. Because uh, even the other ones that are enjoyable, they're not they're not worth going out of your way to see, I would say. You probably just catch a lot of them on just random nitros throughout the years as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the last thing we like to do normally is talk about our match of the night and our MVP. But before we get to that, uh, Levi, I want to give you an opportunity. Plug your shit. Where where can people uh, you got merch people can find uh, anything out there, any social media accounts you want to plug It's your time? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, Levi Shapiro uh, at Levi Shapiro, mainly across the board on you know, Twitter and Instagram. I'm a little active on Facebook, but a lot of the times if I don't really have met you in person or something, uh, I usually don't accept, but you can follow me, you know, if you want to get in. I, I'm really most active on Instagram, I'd say. Uh, I also have a pro wrestling tea store, prowrestlingtees.com backslash the loop. No spaces, all lowercase, the loop. And, um, I'm also featured on a YouTube channel with my buddy Brian Zane, which uh, is called Wrestling with Regret, and I'm sure he would love if I give him a little shout out. And feel free to go over there. And um, I'm the current Wrestling with Regret YouTube champion right now, so I have a couple matches defending his belt, uh, which is a little fun. He's a good friend of mine in the business. Yeah, that's a pretty popular channel, and it's uh, for people searching. It's Regret W R, as in wrestling with and then you know a little mm. play on that in in the way they spell regret and i know i've seen that channel uh, a few times pop up because uh, i know they uh certainly have popped up like on reddit threads and stuff so yeah when i when i first uh after you dm me and i first looked for you on youtube a little bit i was like oh look at that he's he's kind of all over the wrestling with regret channel so yeah that looked like a lot of fun to put together yeah yeah and i've known brian for a long time um you know before the channel and stuff so major success continued you know but when he had the platform he's like hey i got this title you know let's uh let's film some you know just have some fun and try to help put you know more content out you know and his channel took off um surpassing anything that we all thought it would which is really awesome uh we had a lot of really cool stuff planned for wrestlemania weekend uh, and i'm really upset that we didn't get to do a lot of it but hopefully we can kind of put it on the back burner and move forward you know um mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if, if anybody enjoys this, please contact me on Twitter or Instagram. Um, I love I love wrestling, you know, and I hopefully I can just be in wrestling for the rest of my life. You know, I don't need to be in ring a lot of the time, but uh, just kind of 
you know, the history of wrestling is something that's really resonated with me and, um, awesome podcasts, you know, stuff like this is really what's going to kind of keep wrestling alive going forward. And, you know, just, uh, encourage everybody to uh, look up a little wrestling history once in a while. All right. Great point. And that brings us to our match of the night and our MVP, uh, Levi, I want to start with you and let's this week start with our MVP. I feel like we're always going the other order. Let's start with MVP this week. Who was yours? All right. It's going to be kind of low key. And I was thinking about it and I, I think it, it was a really solid choice, but I'm going to go with Bobby Eaton. I think Bobby <laughs> Eaton was nice. a bona fide MVP of the night and really uh, held together the false count anywhere match and made sure that, you know, um, a, a lot could have gone wrong live and, and it didn't. Solid choice. Dave, who is your MVP of Clash of the Champions? Uh, my MVP is going to go to the Iceman Dean Malenko, um, not only because he uh, captured the Cruiserweight Championship, um, but also the storytelling that they had as far as him previously being unable to beat Ultimo Dragon due to Sonny Ono and overcoming that. I felt like it was just a great way of, of telling a very compelling finish to a match in which he regains the championship. Uh, I mean, both men looked excellent in that match. There's really no loser there, but I think especially since he got the championship and, and overcame that obstacle of the Ultimo Dragon, my MVP is Dean Malenko. Well, uh, my MVP was also Dean Malenko, and for the exact same reasons, so uh, I won't go into to that too much, but I agree with everything you said. He was absolutely my MVP, and... Uh, Probably as no surprise, my segment of the night was the Cruiserweight Championship match between Dean Malenko and the Ultimo Dragon. Just a really fun, crisp, uh, as, as Levi said, fluid match that was fun to watch from start to finish. Uh, we'll wrap around back with you, Dave. What was your segment of the night? Uh, yeah, that's uh, very easy. It is the Cruiserweight Championship match. Um, like, I mean, I felt like in my review of the show, it kind of gave that away of like, there's one match that's totally worth watching and everything else is very forgettable. Um, I just, just mm. as a side note, uh, I know some people like putting value into this, uh, but Dave Meltzer gave it four and a half stars, um, which is, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty decent for just like a cruiserweight title match put onto a clash of the champions. Um, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think there really is a very close second place to segment with that. Levi, how about you? Yeah, I was just going to confirm. You're strong with that. And even on the MVP note, if I didn't choose Bobby Eaton, it would have been a Malenko Queen sweep because he was <laughs> he was in charge of everything and uh, really put a solid performance on. And that, that was the, the, the match of the night also, like full force. All right. Well, Levi, thank you so much for joining us uh, and, and appreciate your time. We know we go long with these episodes, so... Thanks for sitting down watching The Clash and talking about it with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. I uh, appreciate it. All right. Well, stay tuned to this channel because pretty soon we will be back right here with our review and recap of Sold Out. Uh, I'm treating it a lot like I treated our Bash at the Beach 96 episode because it is such a standout moment in uh, maybe for different reasons in WCW history. So I'm putting a lot of research in could do a lot of reading i've got a lot of podcast episodes involving people involved in the show 
uh, both on and off screen queued up. So I'm going to be listening to those, taking my notes this weekend. Uh, and you will be able to find that episode right here where the big boys play 20 years of Nitro. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. New Hot Pockets brand pizza snacks. Great taste, more in fat. Baked, not fried. Yum. Hot Pockets. In the value twin pack. Beef. Beef and spice. Never do a Slim Jim. Mmm. Beefy. Chef Boyardee, beef ravioli, beef I need.